You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something. Life as we experience it, it's a big act. And the player is you. hippie modalities breath work meditation the yoga especially the breath work i would be six feet under myself what up fam welcome to another episode of life beyond the game you guys are in for a treat today this is two dates i've recorded over 140 150 podcast episodes through a few different concepts really excited about the relaunch of of this one and and really dropping into to the journey of of what it means to be an athlete and some of the challenges that happen behind the scenes, some of the psychological processes that, that we go through. And out of all those episodes I've recorded, this is the most potent and powerful. And I'm really excited to share it with you. Uh, our guest today is Joe Farrier, and he shares his journey through college where he was confronted with some, uh, some pretty big life-changing experiences and ends up getting, uh, going to the Detroit Lions as an undrafted player and quickly makes a name for himself becoming, I think he breaks the record for most touchdowns by an undrafted rookie ever with seven. And so he talks about really cool story, like going into the NFL and really earning the respect of the likes of Reggie Bush, Matt Stafford, Calvin Johnson, and becoming sort of a fan favorite and becoming really well known. And then confronting a very insane experience where he had a non-football injury and ends up being the, the beginning uh, of the end of his career. And we go talk about a wide range of things in this episode. And it was felt really good to, to drop in with Joe, uh, a brother. Felt like I was back in the locker room. And uh, his ability to open his heart and share... Uh, some of the the things that he went through, uh, trying to find himself and the journey of of, of remembering and deeper self discovery, and uh, he goes into uh, having to deal with the grief of uh, losing both of his parents within a month as well. And this is a really potent and powerful episode. Uh, almost brought me to tears multiple times. So sit back, open your heart, take a few breaths. And enjoy this incredible episode with my good friend, Joe Farrier. Before we dive in, I want to mention the launch of a new, powerful, and transformative community. Although there are countless communities and networks of high-impact leaders, entrepreneurs, and influential visionaries, what they all lack is the depth of heartfelt connection that can only be achieved through what's known as communitas. Communitas refers to an unstructured state in which all the members of, of a community are equal allowing them to share a common experience facilitated through a rite of passage. This is what allowed me to create such unbreakable bonds with my teammates during my time in the NFL and why I'm so passionate and excited about facilitating an initiation into a new type of community, one where all of its members are focused on embodying their highest potential and fullest expression, who else, who also have the desire to use their impact and influence to create a more beautiful world right here and right now. If you're interested in learning more or feeling called to apply, 
Check out the link in the show notes. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Big Joe. What's up, brother? Medium Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Austin, man. Dude, thank you for having me. How's it feel? You just hit, hit the ground running. Yeah, I woke up uh, at 3.30 a.m. for you. For me? Yes. Came all the way over here. Came all the way over for you. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, dude. It was uh, Southwest in, in Group A. Brought the dog. He's group right A, here. so you got to sit behind the computer ready to get that Group A. So I paid a little extra. Oh, you paid the extra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, big bucks Joe's going to spend today. Smart. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I made the flight on time, thanks to a good dear friend. And uh, I'm on a few, I'm only a couple hours of sleep, but uh, it's all worth it. And I feel re-energized by the breathwork session we did before we even started and the one you just did now. I'm, I'm, I got activated again. We're here. Yeah, I'm here, dude. I love it. Well, let's dive in. I want to start with your NFL career and kind of jump right into the big I've arrived moment that you've had when you first made the NFL. You were an undrafted free agent. Undrafted free agent. When did you experience like, holy cow, I've arrived and I'm starting to make a name for myself. Take us there through that experience. Tell us the story. Right. Well, uh, undrafted, if some of you may know, you definitely know that, uh, at the end of the draft, you end up doing the picking. So I picked the Detroit Lions because they had the same, uh, my agent was the same agent for the offensive coordinator for the Lions. So you felt like you had a little in. I was like, oh yeah, I got a little, I think I'm good. That's, and that's good the main list. reason, right? Because I would wonder why would you go to the Detroit Lions? Right. That well, organization's just been known for. Yeah, but at that point I was like. Pretty shitty. I was like, all these 200 and how many, 56 names get called. Yeah. And mine wasn't one of them. Were you disappointed? Extremely. What, did you think you were going to get drafted at some point? Yes. What, what round was there an expectation? I just, I just was hoping for any round. To get I, your name called? I saw one article that, got me, that had me pegged for the second round, and I was like, ooh, this is amazing. And then I was like, most of them were like in the middle, like four, five, six. But it was, I think, uh, extraneous circumstances that pushed me down. Got yeah. me off the board. What were those extraneous circumstances? What happened? I left Notre Dame in a weird way in my freshman year of college. You, um, so you, you went to Notre Dame your freshman year and then you were out? And then what I transferred to UCLA. Yeah, you went to UCLA. a great story. Um, I've us. actually only told it a couple times, uh, especially in public forum. But uh, the story goes, after, after high school in the Valley, Crespi, head over to see Charlie Weiss and be with Jimmy Clausen, Dane Chris, Kyle Rudolph, Mike Floyd, Robert Blanton, Harrison Smith, a uh, bunch of big names, Golden Tate, uh, and uh, went there, had a freshman, freshman year where I was supposed to redshirt, then I burned it, but I was still going to be good because Rudolph was three and out. Him and I together would have been amazing. Um, but uh, backstory, context, the setup at Notre Dame is for Catholic school. Mm -hmm. They abide by certain rules. And, were you uh, Catholic at all? Yes. You were? Yes. Catholic. I went to Catholic kindergarten, pre a preschool, kindergarten, Catholic uh, high school, Crespi all boys school. Oh, we'll dive into that uh, a little yeah. later for <laughs> sure because that yeah. really fascinates me. Yeah. It's, oh, it's great. More on that later. Okay. But, uh, and then Catholic university for one year. So that was a big part of my life. More on that later too because unlearning that stuff. Totally. And it's a big part of my journey as well. Yes. Reevaluating mm -hmm. and restructuring it um, and reprioritizing too. But uh, so nevertheless, Notre Dame, freshman year, go through the whole year, make a name for myself. I, I have a good thing going. 
the next year is going to be big. Sophomore, I mean, spring happens. Uh, so the back half of the year. So this is about 2009. Um, I, uh, context is like each dormitory at Notre Dame is a single sex, one gender mm-hmm. and male and female. And uh, every female dorm has like a house mom or something like that. And then every male dorm has a priest, like a resident director, guy who's watching everything, right? This guy, this priest in particular, short, dark hair, rosy cheeks, glasses, um, played video games with the guys in the, uh, in the uh, uh, dorm and stuff like that. This was St. Edwards Hall. And he uh, was good. We, we, we had a good relationship. Or so I thought. Or so I thought. And, uh, you know, we built rapport. We talked. We, I played Halo. Like, I never played video games, really. And I played Halo with him, and it was fun. And we made memories, right? Well, there was this one moment where after the game, spring game in particular, I had a really good game. I, like, things were looking up. I'm like, okay, good. This is great. I, spring ball's over. Let's let it rip. In the halls of the dorm, early in the night, Red Solo Cup is empty. It's like, what, what you up to tonight, Big Joe? I see him in the halls. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> What's going to happen? But he's super cool about it. He's like, you were drinking. I wasn't drinking yet. Not yet, not but you were sick. planning to drink. Planning to you drink. You could feel it. In right, because <laughs> that's what those crazy, the crazy what fighting do when you're do. in college. Come yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's like, be safe. I heard you had a great game. I'm so proud of you. Like, just be safe tonight. Don't make any bad decisions. Because, you know, you know, I was kind of a wild, unpolished 19-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but didn't know there was something even deeper there. Because after he had talked, had said this nice thing to me, he walked away. I gave him a slap on the butt. Took a couple steps, turned around, and he laid into me. He's got his rosy cheeks turned fire red. Glasses almost popped off his face. And he was screaming at me, motherfucking me, and cussing me out. And I was like, I just turned ghost white because I was like, I've never had that reaction before. Yeah. I mean, it's a normal thing in a football locker room. It's a normal thing in my life. Each other's my butts. mom never hugged me without squeezing my ass. Like just well, that's interesting. We can yeah. get into that later. Too. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little pinch, little pinch, little pinch. Um, but uh, you know that was that was something that was like an aha moment. Like whoa! In that moment, I knew something was really bad was going to happen after it. Like, that wasn't normal. Mm. The next day, very next day, I have a great night that night. Just kind of like blow it off. Didn't think anything of it. Was going to go apologizing to him the next day. Um, but before I had a chance. Uh, I get a manila envelope under my door in my dorm. Open it up. You have been charged with this insubordination event that happened. And uh, you are going to be, have to talk and or see the resident's life. And you are hereby uh, like called for uh, physical violence because he said the slap hurt. Uh, and uh, sexual harassment because it was on his booty. Mm-hmm. And that was all my world crashing, coming crashing down. That was my dream school. Like my grandfather had three sons that all played college football. None of them went to Notre Dame. They could have, but they didn't. He wanted me to go because he was a big Rudy fan. Uh, <laughs> but so, so how did that process unfold? With it, it was a letter, but then you had to go in front of the board and like explain yeah. yourself or was it immediate expul- expulsion? Or? No, so it was basically a, a character. It ended up being like a character witness thing and and stuff like that people coming to your aid but like or the, no, not necessarily character but like 
they were picking apart the person I was. Yeah. I didn't get any witnesses. It didn't help. Like Charlie, Coach Weiss couldn't help me. This was like a weird time. Was there deeper things that like were leading to this? Like this seems like the simple experience shouldn't lead to like all this unraveling of trying to get you out of school, right? Right. Well, to be really honest, there was a compounding thing that happened and I've never told the full part of it is just a month before I had dealt with a tutor in the uh, like study hall period of our, uh, our, for all the football players. Mm -hmm. Once a week or twice a week, we'd have a study hall. And I didn't have a tutor because my grades were dope. Because it was, school was easy for me. It, yeah. yeah, and like some, some of my friends and my teammates had, had tutors. So one time, like the tutor had like, left. There was this, my buddy from high school, like he went to a rival high school, but he's from Burbank, Anthony McDonald. He had this tutor and he like left the room or something like that. And like I said, unpolished, 19-year-old. <laughs> I drew a huge dick on the board. <laughs> and this guy like didn't like it. He was really offended. And like I, like I erased it for him. I was like, dude, I was just kidding, man. I was, I'll, I'm just messing with you, whatever. Told on me. Tattled on me. It sounds like a little kid saying that out loud. <laughs> but uh, got uh, in trouble with that. And so also, you were labeled as the guy that likes to draw dicks. I mean, it wasn't. It's I just, like felt, super I just bad. felt compelled. You know, yeah. I mean, all the best foods are shaped like dicks. <laughs> but in that in that moment, I was just like I said, this is what fourteen years ago. Yeah, um, at a Catholic school. Probably at a Catholic best, school. Best look. I'm six foot eight. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy go lucky. Mm -hmm. And but I don't care about the path of destruction I leave behind me as much. I'm not aware of it. I'm not present. In it. Totally. I'm not mindful of it. It's like my way or the highway. So is this the first experience in your life where you kind of like? had an, an awakening of holy shit that my things I do have repercussions. Yes. Yeah. A very visceral experience. So what was it like leaving Notre Dame? Like how did that transpire and then deciding to go to UCLA? So the whole thing with the whole character thing with, with the, the priest in this moment, what actually went down, it's interesting because the fun part about it is that I left my mark with Notre Dame. <laughs> they had the biggest, they broke the Guinness Book of World Records for the biggest outdoor basketball tournament in the world, right? Anyone that's part of Notre Dame, like a janitor, professor, a student, athlete, uh, Holy Cross across the street, St. Mary's, women, men, everyone can play, right? But it's all outdoor. And if you win this thing, you like, it's like you going down in history. And I'd heard stories about this uh, safety, I forget his name, uh, I forget his name, it escapes me. But there was this legend about him that was like going around campus. <laughs> and, uh, about how he dunked on some kid in front of everybody, super hard. And in front of the whole crowd, he yelled, that's why you pay tuition. <laughs> and the whole like, crowd went nuts. And there was like this legend about this guy, right? So in an ode to him, semifinals for this bookstore basketball tournament that they call it, because uh, it's right next to the bookstore on campus. I get an alley-oop from, uh, from, I think it was Jonas Gray, um, ended up playing in the NFL too. I two-hand jam on this guy. Outdoor basketball. There's a little bit of rain, but fuck it. I'm an athletic 19-year-old. I got all the juice. And there's a big crowd. Probably a thousand people watching. Outside, like in the light rain. It's amazing. I two-hand jam on this guy. My dick is in his face. And it's fucking 
empowering, right? And there's like, there's scoring touchdowns on people. There's hitting a grand slam to win a game. And there's dunking on someone's face where your nuts are on their <laughs> fucking chin. Like, like, that's something like really awesome and tribal like about that. It's like, ugh. That happened. And after it happened, I said, that's why you pay tuition. And the whole crowd erupts, right? The whole crowd erupts. Iconic moment. We end up winning the whole thing. I, I get the MVP of the whole thing. Our, our team name was Hallelujah Hallaback. That, uh, what was it? What's the thing? Commencement speech that year was Barack Obama. Okay. <laughs> Big thing there at a Catholic university for him to be doing the commencement speech. He actually name dropped us. He's like, congratulations. You guys know I like basketball, but congratulations to Hallelujah Hallaback. <laughs> so like we got some, some, some cred from Obama in the commencement speech. So nevertheless, throughout this whole process of me getting in trouble with uh, the residence life at Notre Dame. You're also this, priest, this iconic figure as well. I mean, like, I, I, this, everything's going in Notre yeah. Dame. I, it's working. I'm, I'm going to be a starter with Kyle Rudolph. I'm going to be, you know, I, I largely left my mark. I've, I won the Bookstore Basketball Tournament as a freshman. Okay? It's awesome. Everything's going right. Everything's going right. Yeah. Drew Dick on the board, a little slap on the wrist, no big deal. But in perpetuity, they're like, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're labeled as this dick drawer. And yeah, yeah, but like, you careful. know, like, be careful. Like, we're don't, watching don't out do, for you. Yeah, we're watching you. Like, don't do anything bad again. I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. During this whole like butt slap thing, I get to hear his side. I actually go to talk to him and he's like, he won't talk to me. He's like, oh, like, almost like I'll see you in court kind of thing. Mm. It's like, damn, bro. Like, we like bonded and like, I thought we were cool. Like, I didn't stick my finger in there. I just gave you a little tap. But I guess I just brought back some repressed trauma or memories from totally him. it's just like you must have some type of unconscious projection maybe. that you just maybe. triggered maybe right or maybe it, it could be a, little... a collective like cold religious thing too sure yeah. or maybe he just didn't like being touched yeah. and that's why he became a priest i don't know yeah but in that moment in this whole this whole scenario i found out he didn't like me. yeah he used that story against me and painted it not as a crowd erupting roar through a tribal like you know, feeling of competitive nature, masculine testosterone dunked on somebody because he doesn't fucking know what that feels like. Mm. He doesn't. And me having a, like a good time with it, mm. I said something that was in the lore of Notre Dame. It was mm. fun. And the kid and I like talked after. He was fun. He was like, oh, you fucking got me. And like, yeah. but he doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that after a game, after you bash someone's head in on the fucking NFL football field, gladiators, you shake hands after. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get that. He thought I was being intentionally malicious. Mm. And, you know, it, it breaks me up because whenever I tell a story, as you can tell, I feel the things that I felt during that time. Yeah. So when that time, I found out he didn't like me. I was like, damn, like, people don't like me? Like, I thought I was super fucking likable. My, 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 my goal in life was, hey, like, if you're going to look at me because I'm super tall, like, I want to be liked by you. I don't want you to send me bad energy. My grandmother always told me if you walk into a room, I was like, it's a smile. So I was... You know, if I showed up in a bad mood for something happening at home, like during school at a very young age, like the teacher would call me out. It's like, oh, Joe's in a bad mood again. I'm like, you didn't tell Jessica that she was in a bad mood because she started her period in front. Like, you know, like what the fuck? Yeah. Or, or you know, creates expectation for you yeah. to always be on, always yeah, be in a good exactly. mood. Yeah, exactly. So I learned that, right? So I wanted to be likable. So I found out this guy didn't like me when, in fact, I thought I did. He, he did. Because to yeah. your face, he was acting like everything was good. But yeah, was that's just, why I slapped him on the butt. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, all right, homie, father. I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't deserve to be. I've forgiven him. 
<laughs> like I can tell. You know, I for, no, I've forgiven him because you know what? I saw him. <laughs> funny enough, I saw him on a fucking travel uh, eating show, <laughs> like with like uh, Gordon Ramsay or something like that. And just I randomly saw, on TV. Saw him, I was like, Oh, oh that's God. the guy. That's him. oh, you don't forget that face, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I haven't seen him since until that moment, and I was like. So everything you dreamed of, everything you were working for, came just, crashing just, down. Yeah, crashing down. So talk about that 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 initial death of the identity and the dream of being this great player that you were paving the way at Notre Dame, and it all being taken away, and then having to kind of restart. How did that affect you? Well, at that moment and during that time period, excuse me, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with. It was a death. It was grief. It was trauma. It was like, oh, this is what sleepless nights are. Mm. You can probably count how many hours of sleep I had on one hand throughout the whole entire summer. And, you know, all your high school friends are out and gone and you're the guy that had the big dream to go to the biggest school and be in your fucking living room every Saturday morning to then not knowing whether or not I'm going to be playing football. You know, at that point, you transferring was weird. Now yeah. it's like, fucking free agency it's so yeah, it's weird it's so it? it's so like it's so weird watching that like this whole free-for-all for the whole transfer portal and thing because i had a struggle i was like okay charlie weiss wouldn't go me let me go to any school that they played in the next four years i was like okay well damn can't go to asu having fun <laughs> can't go to stanford they love me uh but ucla made the most sense and even funnier enough i almost didn't get a scholarship there brought my family because that was the basically the first choice to the school they gave, took us on the golf cart. We went around. I'm like, oh, I, I just see it differently now than I did on junior day. I see it differently now. I was like, oh, this could be home. And at the very end of it, Rick knew I was like, hey, uh, why do you guys feel about paying for school? Like, we don't have any scholarships left. I was like, the fuck? <laughs> uh, no, low, I'm like middle, middle class family. Like, nah, I can't. How much it. is tuition? Like probably close to I mean, what, Notre Dame so. was a quarter mil. Yeah, holy so, shit. So, I mean, I think it's something similar to that. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I was like, nah, man, I'm going somewhere else. I yeah. got a bunch of options. Yeah, totally. You know, um, I mean, if you're from starting from Notre Dame, you don't really downgrade from like yeah. it's top level, right? I wasn't going to go to like Southeastern Montana State. Yeah. Know, I'm not going there. I'm going, I'm going to another good school. And it's, it was, I wanted to be UCLA, but it, in that moment, it wasn't. We left the campus thinking like, okay, what's the next thing? Like get the thing rolling. What's the next, what's the next option, right? The next option was running through my head. As we're about to pull up to the house, like the car ride over, uh, Rick Newhouse was like, hey, Joe. I'm like, yeah, so coach? Like, did I forget something there? Did my, my grandmother, she's forgetful. Did she forget, forget something there? He's like, no, we, we got some good news. We got a scholarship. We found a scholarship. We found a scholarship. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow, right? But then the plot thickens, Joe. Oh, tell me more. I went to high school with this, this wonderful man, even though we actually had my first fist fight with him, EJ Woods. Um, <clears throat> tremendous athlete. He had uh, even more, um, if there's a, any sense of coming out of Crespi, like being like the Notre Dame guy, EJ Woods was like right above. If I was like four and a half stars, he was four and three quarters of a star. Um, and uh, he had Michigan coming to school, all this stuff. He went to UCLA. That whole first year he went to UCLA. Um, and when I was transferring, he had gotten into something as well. Um, he didn't slap a priest in the butt because they don't, there's not a lot of priests on UCLA campus, public school, very liberal too. And uh, so it turns out that he got in a little trouble as well. I don't know much detail about it. 
but it was public. See, everything that happened to me at Notre Dame was private, which was another, another element too, because everyone was just- Create their own stories yes. around what happened. Sexual misconduct. Yes. Wow. The R word was thrown around or streaking on campus, which probably made the most sense. <laughs> you did you know? get like looks and stuff on campus? Like, did you actually it's feel all, the energy you know of why? judgment? You know when this happened, Joe? May 8th. 2009. Why is that important? Why do I remember that day? Because I took a final that day in a pink tie in a suit because I had to find out what my future was at Notre Dame that last day of school. Packed up all my shit. Locked up my bike. My bike's probably still there. Locked up. It's the biggest bike on campus. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I didn't know what my future was there. And after this final, I'm like the only one dressed up. Everyone else is in pajamas and stuff. And uh, I go to find out my future at this residence life building. And they tell me straight up, hey, uh, after careful deliberation and all this character poking, we've decided to suspend you for the next, uh, the next semester. Well, that also includes summer. And I was like, but wait a minute, that next semester is fall. Oh, that, that's football season. What the fuck? I slapped someone on the butt. You know, looking back at it, I get it. But like at the same time, I still, I still don't. Like I, there was no, like my intention was not to hurt, was not malice. It was playful. It was fun. It was joy. It wasn't insubordinate. It wasn't putting him down, but he felt that way. And that's when I learned intention versus perception. Mm, in a big way. In a big way. I, I, I don't, I don't learn on the Zoom calls. I don't learn on YouTube videos. I don't, I don't learn by books really I learned by interaction and people and getting coached and doing the thing right away right after how did that experience shape your life like what, well, what did you learn what's the big lesson that you integrated moving forward from that well that I had to be a little more careful with who I shared that energy with right and that was didn't happen overnight like even though there was a this was a jarring event didn't happen overnight it uh, was it was something that I knew was going to take time, but I, that was at least got things in motion mm -hmm. to a better way to share this because it's big. It's the responsibility to kind of like, you know, everyone's looking at you. When I go into a room, people listen, people look, you know. So the, it ta it ta besides the whole intention versus perception, it just taught me that like I said, I use the word polish. You just need to polish this gregariousness, mm. you know, this joy, this, this also deep-rooted desire to be liked. You know, I had to polish that up a little bit. Mm. And so this, this event followed you all the way to the NFL draft and actually tainted the perception of teams when they were looking and scouting you? So I heard. And I also heard that maybe a this person or that person that should have been in my corner didn't maybe help so much. Man, there's so many politics that go into the game and that's just the draft process. Let's yeah. get into choosing to play for Detroit, going there, finally making the NFL. What was that experience like? Going to the big time as an undrafted guy. Because I know there's so many different experiences. A lot of people don't understand. There's, you know, if you're a first round draft pick, you're first, first of all, you're getting paid like $10 million plus. If you're a top 10 pick, it's even more. And that drops off considerably to like the second to fifth, sixth round, 
where you're making between like half million and maybe a couple million dollars signing bonus. And then the sixth, seventh round, it's like minimum. And then college free agents, like each team signs 25 each year, maybe one of them, two of them maybe make the team. So it's the odds go like way down yeah. and you're not getting a lot of money. So what was that experience like really having to prove yourself and, and making it to the big time? It's a great question. Cause like for one, it's already a, a statistical anomaly to make it in the first place. And then when the, the whole draft process isn't, isn't in your favor, because these GMs, they picked these guys and they picked the tight end in the seventh round. So there's another guy to had to compete against. Um, Did that affect, I mean, your decision when you were going there? Because if they, there's only so many tight end spots, maybe three on each team. Right. Two guys are playing, the right. third guy is kind of a backup. Right. And so for them to draft a guy in the seventh round, then you go, you know, you're in direct competition with that other rookie to make the team. Right. But I had done my research. Yeah. I had seen the talent that was at a tight end position in each team. Yeah. Um, and then I also knew the, the type of player that they did, did draft a tight end. Blocker, Alabama guy, wasn't running corners like I was. Yeah. And that was okay. I was you like, were oh, a real pass threat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was a gazelle running down there. And also just throwing <laughs> Massive the Massive gazelle. <laughs> just get it. I used to, yeah, used to get it. Glory days. Um, but I made the decision because Scheffler was getting old. <laughs> Tony, if you see this. Chef, you're old. Um, and uh, Pettigrew, good player, but I saw myself being different from him as well. So it just like made sense. And also like, give me that shit. Like it's competition. Like I have to change my mindset. Like I'm not going there with any sort of comfort at all. I had to go in there and get it. And then this new focus was part of my life. Like, and I also wasn't, I reserved the gregariousness I mentioned earlier, you know, that I learned to polish it over my years at UCLA for the most part. Yeah. I still use it when I was at the Playboy Mansion. Because like, you can't come into else. the NFL. I mean, I played long enough where there's like all different types of rookies coming in and all different types of energy. And I remember a couple guys that came in like a little bit more, like their shit didn't stink, a little more egocentric, a little more like I belong here. And they kind of like flash themselves around and like, the, if the veterans, if you get on the bad side of the veterans right away, those first impressions are really hard to change. And I just saw a couple of players come in with that attitude. Yeah. And they were out the door like within, one guy came in, he was out the door within, within 24 hours. All right. <laughs> yeah, already. Like, fuck this guy. Like, get him out of here, right? Mm. And so, because you don't have any comfort. You don't, like, right. you're trying to prove yourself and make a name for yourself. So this rookie year, you, you're just super focused, making sure, because perception is such a big thing in the NFL. Right. And also, the element of having vets like you like that I'd done it before. And I had tremendous respect for it because my uncle played. I knew what it was. I knew what, through his experience what it was like. And uh, so in that, in that element, it kind of lit the fire under my ass because I was super uber focused and I didn't want to win people over with that likability desire. I was like, oh, I'm going to win them over with how I play. Mm. And it was progressive. It was, oh, Nate Burleson's dapping me up okay, I have a handshake with Calvin Johnson. Wait, I'm in the same huddle as Calvin. Oh, I'm first team. And then I'm like playing more and then getting, getting, you know, Big Joe, like, you know, all this stuff. I'm diving for balls. Like, When did you start earning respect? Was it that first year? It was training year, camp. Training, training camp, camp. Your rookie there was year. A glimmer, there was a glimmer in spring a little bit um, here and there, but it doesn't mean shit until you put pads on. You right? just started making plays and then the vets were like, this guy can help us win. So yes. then they started earning respect. I was mossing Steven Tully because he was so short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's still my guy. And, uh, you know, I was just making plays. Stafford was throwing me the rock because if he couldn't throw it to Calvin, he knew how to throw it to Calvin. He could throw it the same way to me and I would get it. Yeah. Just a light, lighter skin version of it, if I say so myself. 
no, I had some really good, I had some really good hands and I used them and uh, earned the respect. I went from like, cause there was other guys that they were had on the team to try them out. Like I was like sixth, seventh in line. I was the guy that went through the line and after everybody went, I, I was, sorry, I was the guy that held the bag for everybody in line. And then when everybody went, someone held it for me so I could hit it. Mm. You know, I was yeah. that guy. Yeah. You know, and I was like, all right, cool. Let's do this. Start from the ground up. Yeah. It's fine. Let's do it. And then I just incrementally put day to day together, play by play together and start stacking. That's when did you feel like, when did you feel like, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm going to be a, a, an asset on this team and really be a strong contributor. When, when did that moment happen? It happened when Sue started fucking with me. In training camp? Yes. Your rookie year? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, He's a motherfucker. Yeah, he is. Yeah. But I earned his respect. Yeah, how got so? To, got to the point where like, he would call me, he called me pussy. He said, look at your little calves. Like, get into me, bro. Like, yeah, he, he talks shit. Talk shit. And he was so good. That man is so, so phenomenal to watch him play. However, back then, he was still kind of erratic. So like every time he got close to a quarterback, this is before all the new rules with helping the quarterback. Every time he got close to the quarterback, Everyone on the sidelines butts puckered because they're like, oh, don't get a flag. Don't get a flag. Every time. Don't squash the so, guy's head yeah, in after right. you attack. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was a, gl- a glaring moment when it was Burleson, Nate Burleson, big brother of mine. His, he saw it pretty soon. And then he also like saw that I kind of showed my personality to him a little sooner. And then Reggie Bush was giving me love. We ended up being really close. And then I sort of had getting a handshake. I, when I caught this ball one time in the indoor practice field and Calvin ran to me and like dapped me up, I was like, yeah. How's it feel to start earning that trust from the vets? It's, oh, it's nothing like it. It's an endorphin, serotonin, dopamine. Everything is kicking. Like everything is firing. And it's, it's reaffirming. It's validating. Mm. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be liked. I want to be respected. And then the other bullshit came. I was like, hey, I'm actually really funny too. Like, let's go drinking. Like, yeah, you know, like, feel comfortable. Yeah. Start showing more of your personality. Yes. And that, and that, was, and that was the best thing I ever did. Um, that was the best thing I ever did. Because I did it the other way at Notre Dame and at UCLA. Just didn't, just was different, right? But this was very validating. And it was like, okay, I do deserve to be here. And when one time, Sue, during practice, like, we're getting closer. This is end of training camp, getting closer to the season. And I don't even know if I'm making the team. I don't know. I know, but I don't know how they're going to shuffle it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but one time he's like, God, is it a preseason game or something like that? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, it was a preseason game. And he came off the sideline or he wasn't even playing. And I was like getting in. He's like, why aren't they putting you in? I was like, oh, I don't know. He's like, we need you. We need you out there. Or it was like, it was the first game of the season. And somebody dropped the ball or somebody that's like, Joe, we need you. I was like, what the hell? Like that was that moment. You and then me. immediately thereafter, uh, the first game against the Vikings, I actually scored my first touchdown in a go-ahead, go-ahead, uh, go-ahead style. Like we needed it towards the end of the fourth quarter. This is in a preseason game. No, this is actually a first game of the season. Oh wow! Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're really you you contributed in a big way. Yeah, yeah. 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 But f- so I kind of skipped over actually making the team, but got Sue's validation during a preseason game. I kind of overlapped those, but then eventually, uh, first game of the season, I this wasn't my aha I arrived moment, but I was like. It was the most amazing thing because after I was so elated, I danced after. And that was around the time when you couldn't dance, but I like did it with like a the touchdown goal. celebration. Yeah, a touchdown celebration. Yeah. And it was just like something came over me, but I was like, if this does happen, I want to be prepared. Cause like, yeah, I got Calvin, Reggie, Nate, you know, Matt Stafford. I got all these guys in the team that have big names. I'm like, 
I just, I'm, I kind of want to entertain and get noticed too. So, hey, look at me. I can dance after it. Because it's that one, you, you don't get individuality on a football team, do you? No. So, in that moment, when you score, even though, you know, it should be about the team and like, you know, embrace each other, you know, celebrate with the team, right? Celebrate with the team. It's good. I do. But before, before we celebrate with the team, when every pair of eyes are looking at me, what am I going to do? I'm used to it. It happens every time I walk into a room. But now it's a fucking full stadium. So I still fucking dance like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is predetermined. You're like, I'm going to dance. Yeah, I had a plan. I, yeah, you had and a plan. Right, Miley Cyrus came out with this like, music video and like, she like, did like, some WAP dance or something like that. I didn't do it really good, but like my hips were moving. And like Detroit ate it up. <laughs> I love that you stayed so focused and like did not let this part of yourself show until you made the team, went with the go-ahead touchdown, and then you're like, I'm coming out. And here then, I pff, am. Sent it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fucking good, dude. Yeah. Did you get flagged? No. What? Within the rules. Oh, so you not, studied the play, you studied the rule book. Uh -huh. Tell me about that. I mean, it was just a quick glance. It wasn't that big of a section of it. So what did it say about keep, the rule keep, of dancing? Keep it, keep celebrations within this time frame. Um, no excessive movements. Excessive is very subjective. Mm -hmm. And don't drop to the ground. You can't like go and do the worm or something like that. It's like a spontaneous dance move. They're not going to just right. throw a flag because it doesn't feel predetermined. Right. You can't throw the ball overhand in the stadium, but you can throw underhand in the stadium. Very weird. Like yeah. I know all these weird nuanced rules. And they've changed a lot too. They've changed a lot. But yeah, in this since moment, they've opened it to like, they actually encourage yeah. dancing because they realize it includes fans and it makes it a lot more fun. And it's not as like dry. It was really dry for a long time. It was dry. Yeah. And with that dryness, there was a glimmer. of. And of, you were that guy. I was the glimmer. I was the twinkle in the eye in Detroit, Michigan, wearing Honolulu blue, big, <laughs> big goofy tan guy doing a weird dance. And it, it showed. And like, that was a boom, a trajectory for like, you know, popularity and not just on the team but the city the fans the city, started knowing dude. who you were in social media yeah like how did like that, that feel i mean it felt good getting like snapchats of girls phone numbers like <laughs> shit like it was awesome yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so how did the rest of that year unfold my my moment my moment was uh it was there was good success for everything for all things all things considered i scored the most ended up scoring the most touchdowns by any undrafted rookie tight end eight seven seven in one year for the rookie year. For the rookie year. Yeah. But the, how I got seven was against the Browns one time. Uh, I think it was like game four or five or I don't remember. But it was middle, early middle of the season. And uh, we played the Browns. And they were doubling Calvin. Like, but there was like, there were just eyes on him. And I was this new guy. But I played a lot that game. And I ended up getting a touchdown. Danced. It was great. Nate Burleson comes over to me. He's like, that's awesome, bro. Oh, well, you know, we're tight. Like at this point, like, he's like, you're going to get, he looks into my eyes. It's like, you're going to get another one. I was like, no one's ever said it to me like that before. It's like this knowing. Yeah. And like, how do you know, bro? Because like, you know, I gotten touchdowns before and I had even gotten one, a few, uh, uh, like two before this, this Browns game. He hadn't said that to me before, but for some reason, I guess I got it in the first, first, second quarter and there was like still room and he might've known what was going on with the defense. I don't know. He just felt something. This guy and I were connected, right? And I got another one. Scored. Didn't know. I didn't have a third, a second dance plan. So I just dunked it on the goalpost. Definitely got flagged for that. This is before Jimmy Graham ruined it for everybody and tore down the goalpost. Yeah. I, this was like the last year you could dunk. Oh, the Last shit. year. And I did a windmill. And it's actually funny. Found out later on after watching the film, you know, the, the field view. 
I windmill dunked and you could see a perfect line of sight. Because, you know, before they put up the safety net for uh-huh. the field goal, it goes straight into the crowd. Okay. I pigged a poor woman directly in the schnoz. I Marsha Marsed her from Brady Bunch. Okay. And that next Monday or the, the, the next film. When day, you watch the film. Yeah, yeah, we watched the film. I went to every fucking offensive room just to watch it slow-mo and <laughs> rewind like four or five, six different times. The longest time was in the offensive line room. Of course, they're probably yeah, loving that everyone shit. Everyone was loving that shit. And that, that's, at that point, like, even though I was a receiving guy and uh, there was this, you know, this thing about me that, uh, this perception of me that I wasn't a good blocker because I had these like long lower extremities. But uh, I actually did block pretty well. And it was like this weird thing that my team knew and like the actual NFL players knew, but not like anybody else. Mm-hmm. There was like a the stigma against me because mm-hmm. I just looked like I couldn't block. Yeah. But I had a lot of respect from the offensive line, which is great. Yeah. And they were just eating it up, dude. Like, That's I when you know you finally arrived. Face, dude. Offensive line likes yeah. you. I scored that second touchdown, windmill dunk. Nate Burleson comes to me. He's like, you're going to get another one. <laughs> I swear to God, Joe. I was like, no one's ever told me. I've never gotten three touchdowns before. I've only gotten two. Two's cool. Two's great. Scored, I fucking scored 12 points. It's a lot of points on the board. Okay. I did a fade route, back shoulder, beautiful pass by Matt Stafford. And man, I knew I was going to get it too. I knew they weren't going to throw Calvin. Matt in the huddle said, it's coming to me. Which is fucking cool. Matt Stafford in the huddle saying, Joe, it's coming to you. All right, okay. Does that affect you when you go out to... Yeah, it does. Yeah. Matt, shut the fuck up. I was like, give me some air of mystery, dude. But no, like, I was... Uh, no, I was ready because I was like, oh, I was fucking built for this. And I've already what was the route? Were you like... It was uh, an easy fade. Were you... Were you? I was out on the right. Out? On the right, like four or five yard line. And uh, I had already torched this guy a couple times. I had gotten some other passes too. And uh, you know, he couldn't stop me. Like you put a linebacker on him and run past You're him. twice the size at least of a DB. Yeah. And yeah. He, thought, he thought they were going to go high or over the top. Back shoulder. Stafford back shouldered it. Uh, oh man, my hands. How nice is it having those, those NFL QBs that just know exactly how to precision the rock? Man, it's crazy. It like there, there's a lot of running backs, a lot of offensive linemen, a lot of tight ends, a lot of linebackers, and a lot of safeties. But being in the specialist, people can kick the ball. But quarterback, dude, there's a reason why. Like it's so they're protecting this shit because as soon as you drop off from those top like 15 guys, mm-hmm. it's like not fun to watch. Yeah. So the, the the magic of football truly comes from the quarterback. Totally. You know, and yeah. obviously the fucking massive gladiator men that dance like ballerinas. It's fucking incredible. But that right there makes the game go. That's why they're protecting them. It's not fun to watch though when they're like, you know, the soft shit that they're doing now. I hate it. It's gone. The pendulum's swung a little bit too far. I'm sure they'll adjust it this season because it's a little bit ridiculous. But I mean, everything does, right? I mean, it's like the NFC championship game when Brock Purdy got hurt in the first quarter, it was like, I, like I was like all excited to watch this game, this rookie quarterback. It's like never happened before. He's playing really well. I want to see him ball out against the best team in football. And then he hurts his elbow. And I'm just, and the, the fucking four string quarterback who people that don't know football, like that guy got zero reps during the zero. week. Zero had zero command of the offense. And it's just like, this sucks. Yeah. The whole game sucked. Yeah. And that, that affects the whole brand of the NFL. Like, there's, hope nobody, for, there's hope for a lot of San Fran thinking like, oh, we're going to hit strike gold again. It's like, oh, we did it with third string. Why can't we do it with our fourth string, right? Oh, yeah, no. But we know right away like… It's fucked. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. It's fucked. Yeah. It's just so Back disappointing. <laughs> and like, that, that affects the whole brand of the NFL because like they want to put a good product on the field. So even the like top 
people in charge of the game are like, this is, this is terrible. We can't let this happen. Yep. Yep. We're losing money. Yeah. When those quarterbacks go down, they lose money. Totally. So take us through. So you're making a name for yourself. Have an incredible rookie year. Probably one of the best on record for tight ends, undrafted rookie. You're just feeling on top of the world. So take us through kind of the next phase of your career and how that started to unfold. I lost my focus. I thought I arrived. Mm. A whisper from Nate Burleson like a year after, like it was like, like all this happened. I eventually did leave and like my career was going downwards. He, he mentioned that. And I think he mentioned it in passing. How, so how many years after this? This was like year? three, this was just like three years later, but three years um, later. I kind of skipped and jumped, but it reminded me because I didn't know that that was the case until he said it. So rewind back three years. I thought I arrived. You know, and I thought I earned the respect. Okay, let, let's go. Let's do this. Like, now let's build from here. And then I got shot down with them drafting a tight end in the first round. I was like, damn, I thought you all liked me. When was that? Was that your second year or third year? Second year. Second year. Second they, year drafted. They, they drafted Eric Ebron. Okay, so how did that make you feel? How did that, that make me feel? Yeah. One, I fucking love E. He's great. I'm glad he had a great career. But at this time, you know, it was something that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Did you find out on draft day because watching the draft and then they drafted the tight end? Well, I knew it was whispers, but uh, I thought I had done enough work. I was like, okay, well, and then there was a couple of guys on still on contract. I was like, okay, I'm, this is me. Let's, let's do yeah. this. But, you know, in the first round, the rule is you get the best players on the board, right? Yeah. And I told Mark Mayhew, the GM of the Lions at the time, he asked me about Anthony Barr, who is like the one of the best linebackers. Who played at UCLA with played you. At UCLA yeah. with me. And I was like, get him. Mm. Like, he would be awesome here. Especially like the defensive style that we had at the Detroit Lions at the time. Anthony would have fit perfectly. Perfectly. The Vikings were the 10th pick. The Lions were the ninth pick or something like that. So they were deciding whether it was going to be A-Bar and Eric Ebron, basically. And they chose the Eric. That night was... <clears throat> The first time I've ever experienced truly my own type of abuse with a substance. Tell us about that. I, I didn't understand what people like the whole like brown paper bag thing when you're chugging a whole bottle to yourself. And like I had addicts and alcoholics in my family. Like, I saw it, but I never really understood it. But empathy for it, I never really understood it. 19. <laughs> bottle of 1942 sitting on my shelf full still has plastic on it i opened it up that night crushed the whole thing mm. i might have a pill or two too as well what kind of pills like oxycodone yeah, or something tic tacs they call tic tacs yeah <laughs> uh, pain pills yeah pain pills yep. i mean uh, i i danced with that devil a little bit in college i'll never forget against nebraska it was like there was this big game and like the weekend before i was like didn't play well my back was killing me i was like ah oh, man this sucks and I, unfortunately, I had like some really good access to pills, not only with the team, but like medical people in my family. It was just easy to get like, hey, I, I, I'm in pain. Like big guys in pain, help them. That, that was the culture, right? It wasn't anything necessarily inherently bad yeah. at the time. But in this moment, my first, my first alcohol abuse was the day of the draft. First pill abuse was I noticed against Nebraska, I scored two touchdowns. The very first one, uh, it was up the left sideline, like a 35 yard wheel route, and I caught it beautifully. Like no one on, no one around me. And I'll never forget. Well, actually, I do forget. <laughs> More on that later. Is 
I saw a visual of it from a perspective of the camera. I don't actually remember the play. Because you were on pills? Because I was on pills. I took, I, it was a uh, hydro, hydrocodone? Yeah, something like that. One of the codones? Yeah. Uh, Vicodin or something like that? Yeah, one of the opiates. I took 20 milligrams before the game and 20 at halftime, which is a lot. Yeah. So I was high. And that was the only game you've done that? You did that during college? Yes. The only game I did. I took, I took maybe a half here or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that but was one you, you were, you were clearly a little bit, yeah, but you were still playing and I was performing. Just, I was just Isn't that numb. fascinating? I was just numb. Yeah. I was like, I am just a flesh, you know, flesh monkey, like just running around with, with all these pads and like, I just know how to catch balls and stuff. Like I just programmed, Yeah, you know, to do the thing that I was doing, but everything else was numb. Mm. Everything else was numb. And, I'll and you didn't forget. like that feeling? Like, is that why you didn't do it again? Or you just... Didn't like the feeling. Yeah. But I, at the time, to be honest, dude, Joe, I would do it again. Yeah. Because that game was super big and we won. We, we beat a ranked opponent. I was on film getting two touchdowns. So you were not only just euphoric from the pills, but euphoric from… No, the, the euphoria wasn't there. Interesting. You were numbed out. I was numb, dude. I, I had the very strong visual of this touchdown that I barely remember. I had a beautiful picture of it and a beautiful video of it, like from memory of the, the actual film. But in that moment, I don't remember because usually after I score, I'm super excited. I Dragon Ball Z, super sane. Ah! Like, I love it. Like, you couldn't dance back then. So I was like controlling. Hold it in. Hold it in. Wait one more year. You know? Like, you could do it soon. Can't spike the ball and shit, you know? Yeah. So I remember oh, I scored this touchdown. It's the only one that's ever happened. I just looked in the crowd and I was like, <laughs> I just dropped the ball. There was like no emotion involved. It was Zero. just like I… Like, and I got hugged and jumped on. I was like… Uh, fascinating. Cool. Like, it, it's trippy looking back at it now. That was my first bad experience with pills. And then my first bad experience with alcohol was drinking a whole bar in 1942 that night. Yeah, using, using alcohol to… Like, knowing you're using it to escape the intensity of the emotions that you must have felt. I had a similar experience when I was… Going my second year into my third year, yeah. our starting center was like a 13-year vet. His contract was set to be up, and so everybody thought he was going to retire. And they drafted me as a center, but I was playing right guard that whole season. And so I had this whole story I created in my mind going into the offseason, like I'm going to move over and I'm going to be the rightful heir to this starting position and have my own 10-plus year career. And now is my opportunity that I've been waiting for. And I remember watching the draft at a bar with a bunch of like the younger guys and one of my friends, who's a tight end, actually, he was like the third string tight end, it was Mike Palmer. And he came up to me and we had Tony Gonzalez as our number one. And yeah. he was getting towards the end of his career. So he was like, man, we're going to draft the tight end with our first pick. And he was just sweating bullets, like just super nervous about it. I was like, yeah. And I was just like, chill. Had no worries in the world. Like, don't worry about it, dude. And then our pick gets closer. And all of a sudden he comes running up next to me and he's like, Joe, you're never going to believe this. I'm like, what? He's like, we're drafting a center. And I just like... I, I, I laughed because I didn't believe it. And then as soon as I saw on the screen that we draft the top center in college football, I literally felt like my whole, like the rug was ripped out from under me. Like every, like nobody communicated that to me. Like I just felt betrayed. I felt humiliated. Like everybody's eyes were on me and I was just like, what the fuck? And that like led to one of the most challenging years of my life. I ended up drinking a lot more, taking a lot more pills, like really escaping, not just in one bottle that night. I'm sure I did the same thing. I just was like drinking it away. Like, holy shit, this, I don't want to feel this. But then going into barely making or thinking I was going to be the starter, we ended up signing back the starting center to a one-year deal. So I went from thinking I was going to be the starter to barely making the team. And I was on the sideline as an inactive. Ended up getting suspended for, you know, getting popped for a PED test for taking Adderall and ended up leading to me almost getting cut. And so it was just really intense. And I had this big wake-up call. Uh, I was in the program for, for two years. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was in the program too. <laughs> what were you in the program for? Uh, <laughs> God, Joe, you good ass questions. Fuck. Uh, all right. Hold on. So in the midst of damn man, you asked me a good question. Should have shut my mouth. <laughs> uh, I tried to evade the like drug process or drug testing process because I was scared because I had done uh, some uh, extracurriculars on Friday. Like, like what, like cocaine or something? Yeah, it's yeah. cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Which is an amphetamine that shows up the same as Adderall would. Yep. yep. And uh, I was a little worried. Um, so like that, it was like Sunday or something like that. Like I knew I was going to get tested probably the, the next Monday. I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. Because so cocaine, cocaine's out of your system in like 24 to 48 hours. But so if you're taking it that, that weekend and you get drug tested like on Monday, it's the worst I'm, possible. But so. also, that means I was doing a lot on Friday. So, uh, <laughs> damn, I never told anybody that. <laughs> so, very comfortable talking with you. I, some yeah. say it's a gift. Some say it's your blue eyes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I tried avoiding it. And my, my, uh, P test was like slightly dilute with trace amounts of cocaine. And uh, I ended up just getting to the program and um, I was, how do you say, maybe like kind of in it and like still going to potentially get out. And <laughs> it happened again. Like I just didn't respect it. And then I was like the second level of the program, which was like, one's a slap on the wrist, two's like, oh, like you, oh, I forget what it is. You get not suspended, but uh, docked pay or something like that. I, for, I forget. So you never actually got suspended? No, never actually got suspended. Never but when you got, go in the program, it's, it's, you go from being potentially tested like three to four times in a year to like, you could be tested once a week. For, yeah, I was, I think it was like four times a month. Yeah. Um, and it's just a hassle so, and you can't do any more but you know drugs. what it only ignited my addiction even more really how so because I was always trying to do it around the time they were testing me if and they, if they since they were testing me I couldn't smoke weed mm -hmm. so I was just looking for a vice and so cocaine was your vice cocaine was my vice yeah. for, for, a little, for a little bit yeah and I danced with that devil this was only like for like a, this is a period of a few months like literally when I started doing it was literally when I got caught because I just didn't know what it that's the thing with cocaine is it's, yeah. once you start doing it, so this is great. Yeah, it's great. Dude. It's cool. It's cool. And like all your friends are doing it, it or going out on the weekends and stuff. Life. And this is like, a, but this is a very short amount of time in this time frame. So I didn't like, I didn't know how to do it. Like I didn't respect it or whatever. I don't know how you respect that thing. That thing is the worst. Yeah. Have, yeah. So in this moment, I, uh, I figure out that I'm in the program, I'm getting tested every day. Uh, and then I, if I get my fourth test, like on like the 25th, I knew 26, 27, 28, 29th, 30th, 31, I could party. Mm. And I did. And that was just like me coping with not, this was around the time Ebron got drafted. This is the summer before my second year. And all these things are happening. And I'm just like, I, I thought I arrived. I lost my focus. You know, I wasn't grounded. I was very floaty. I was, you know, like sleeping, sleeping with a bunch of women, like without any regard for any sort of connection. Um, I liked the ability to pay for things and stuff like that. It was just like making money shallow. too. You had money at that point because yeah. you had played a few years. So talk a little bit about the, the, 
the process uh, and, and the support that the NFL provides for kind of that mental and emotional strain of like, you know, you, you, you're basically someone drafted. So you have all these feelings coming up, no one to really talk to or process. So you go to these drugs and alcohol, which is something I definitely experienced. What kind of support did you have in your life at that time? Or was it just these kind of drugs that you used to kind of cope? Well, you know, what's great is that they actually did give you a, a appointed uh, therapist to mitigate your addiction, I guess, or work through it or whatever. But my therapist in Detroit was specific like for that because she believed I did have a problem. And I, and I did, but like it wasn't to the magnitude that they laid out, at least or so at that point I, I thought. And looking back at it, I still think that way. Uh, but then I had this therapist in LA when I was like going back and forth and during the summer. And he was incredible. He was incredible. Um, actually, this makes me think I should reach out to him. But at the same time, I had this trickster mask where I was like, yo, like, I don't know how I got in there. I didn't own up to it. I was like, because at the time, I only done it a couple times, really. But then I only did, I did it more progressively after I got caught, right? And I worked through that. But the one in Detroit was very, like, on the whole, like, being by the book. The one in L.A., cool guy. And our therapizing moved away from addiction and got to me. And that was like the most amazing thing. Like I got to see him, but at the root of it, there was still a lie. You know, it, what I do was, you mean a lie? I told him you I were, didn't do it. You were lying to him. I was lying to him. Yeah. yeah Which is a addiction behavior. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, oof. and he, uh, still though, I think I maybe subconsciously did that because I wanted to divert it to what I truly needed, which was the root thing because the Detroit guy wasn't doing it right. I was like, come on. Like, come what on. was the root thing that you guys were getting to? Everything. Everything. The traumas I had, why I was using, like all these things, like the, the whys. And I mean, what were some of those whys? Do you, do you mind uh, I mean, my childhood experience, um, single mom, only child. Mom struggled a lot, mm. a lot, a lot. And I was always a witness. Um, and then when I wasn't a witness, I was going to my friend's house for like a few days or a week or my grandparents' house. We lived with my grandparents for most of my life. Um, but you know, getting to the root of that, I never really had anyone to talk to about that. Mm. And, you know, for the longest time, football was that escape. That was my therapist. That was my brother's. That was my way to get my anger and rage out. Let's talk about the, the the end of your career when that was no longer an outlet for you and, and kind of take us through the process of, of how that unfolded. Uh, such a good question. Very good question. Because like, it's so, it's such a visceral thing and so unique too. Like hearing you talk about your experience also with someone getting drafted is super unique, dude. No, I look at you and you having felt that, everything you said, like you just, just the life leaving your body when you heard and when you saw it on the TV, I'm like, oh, I know that. And probably a handful of people in this world know that. And it's reserved for a very lucky, fortunate few, right? And hearing you say that was just, it's empowering because like you're here doing this, you know, we're here doing this. And we both went through that. Um, but, uh, 
Well, that second year, even though I was struggling with the program and, you know, the, the, the draft and whatever, I still ended up like starting. I was still like the first few games. I'm like, oh, they're, they're naming me as a starter. Like, I'm, I'm getting introduced to everybody in front of the stadium, home games as Joe Fourier. And dude, my second year, the first couple games, the place would erupt. They loved like, you. It was like Calvin Johnson. Ah, Matt Stafford. Ah, and you know, you know, linemen get a little love. Dom Rayola got a lot of love. But like, if there was anyone like right under Stafford and Calvin and even Reggie, like I got probably the, one of the bigger applauses. Like mm. in the city. you can hear like, the, you can feel the vibrations. Like getting dapped up by your team in a tunnel to walk out and be glorified before you go into battle is the coolest fucking tradition. I love it. Mm -hmm. And I got to be a part of that a couple of times. I was a starter, mm -hmm. even with Ebron. But game three, play the Panthers, do well. That off day in, on Tuesday, um, <laughs> idle hands, right? Devil loves idle hands. And I had idle hands. I don't play video games, I watch TV, just hang out. I like going to movies by myself. But I'm too friendly and I made friends with the neighbors and they invited me to watch them play volleyball. So I watched them play volleyball and went to the game with no intention of playing. That's why I wore my Jordan 11 lows and uh, low tops, ankles exposed, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'm watching the games. And I'm like, oh, it's competitive. It's coming out. You know, I'm in the middle of the season. Testosterone boosting. You know, my neighbors are also cute. So uh, jump in in between the games. I'm like, hey, set me. Set me. Go up, smack the ball, 10-foot line. The whole place is like, whoa. And I'm like, ha-ha. Saw that? Wait till you see this. So I go for another one. Second spike, they set me. Boom, again. Pow. You know, it's like this amazing doot-doot noise. Like before you even hit the ground, like it goes doot-doot. Like pan hitting the ball and the ball hitting the ground super fast. And then there was another doot. <laughs> And it was my fucking ankle. Came down in it the wrong way, like I never had before. No support. Um, and uh, in that moment, right away, how the pain surged through my body, like right there, I'll never forget it. I know which way I turned. I know which, how I limped. I know how, where I, what door I walked out of the gym so no one would see the pain. I couldn't hide it. And in that moment, I knew it was like, oh, my career is over. I knew it. And until the grief and the loss of Notre Dame, probably the next biggest thing was the grief and loss of something I worked my entire life for and by my own dumb mistake. So the events leading after was panic. Anxiety, pain, they, they triple, quadruple dosed me with Dilaudid, which is like this crazy morphine-esque painkiller. I think it's like one of the things they use on Michael Jackson or something like that. But anyways, it was the only relief I could get. It was the most extreme injury I've ever had in my life. Where did you go immediately after when it was shattered? Did you go to the hospital? Did you call the team right away? Like, how did you even break the news? Like, I fucked up. Because, you, you, I mean, you're taking full responsibility. It's not like you got hurt out on the practice field. Like, this is a non-football injury, which is... Yeah. In the middle of the night, I go to, to the uh, hospital. I call um, 
one of the head trainers to tell him, hey, it's not looking good. Da, 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 da. I'm in the hospital. I don't want anyone to know who I am in the hospital because Detroit, they're everywhere. I used to, I used to eat free pizza. Like literally hung, Hungry Howie's or, or Jet's Pizza. They come to my door. They're like, Joe Fourier? I'm like, yeah. They're like, free pizza. I was like, okay. I'm going to give him a huge tip. But like, like okay. Like, thanks, dude. Like, one time, like, the guy was like, your money's no good here. Enjoy your barbecue chicken. I was like, all right, cool, dude. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, at the hospital. all of that wash yeah. away. Yeah. And I knew it. And um, the neighbors helped. They were very caring for me. But, you know, my, my, my whole leg was purple. Whole leg very specific and uh i uh definitely lied about it like how it happened yeah to the team i lied about it what'd you say i found i just knew that they had the option to not pay me yeah if i got hurt off the field if you're snowboarding or jumping on an airplane you break something it's like, in your contract it's in your contract it's, yeah they'll just say it's void see ya. so i was like oh i kind of like having zeros in my bank more zeros in my bank account like you know i'm not gonna tell the truth so what did oh, you say? I told him, uh, I, I wish I would have, I wish I would have, if it wasn't that bad, I would have like gone to the parking lot the next morning and like tripped on some like fake ice. <laughs> and like, even though Skid it wasn't it on camera yet. Yeah, like, okay, I did it on, I did it on uh, the ground. So like, still pay me. But I said, hey, I was chasing after my dog. I said, he peed in the house and I was chasing after him and my socks and my ankle got rolled or whatever. The first thing the team doctor says to me, even without any knowledge of this happening or any sort of whispers or anything, no public knowledge of it. First thing that the team doctor says to me, he's like, man, Joe, this, this, this looks like a, a volleyball injury. I used to work in the USA volleyball team. This looks like a volleyball injury. I'm like, yeah, but it's not, <laughs> you know? Double down. Yeah. How did, did that must've felt like he was seeing through your lie? How did you even like, well, him and I had a rapport too, and I had the trickster mask, just like I got the therapist, because yeah. he believed me. Um, and but that, back to that, like he, we still healed together. Mm -hmm. And I hope one day, if he ever hears this, like I gotta tell him, like, hey man, like I did do that shit. But in this moment, like he had and I had a rapport, I was like, and I, and I, and I got the charm, I got the charisma, like, oh, I didn't fucking volleyball, no, man, I was chasing a dog. And it just happened, I told him this very like detailed story, like how it happened. Maybe the more detail probably wasn't in my favor, but. You know, uh, he, yeah, yeah. In that moment, I was like, okay, well, I'm doubling down. Like, it's going to be a ride. Like, I got to tell the, the press. I got to tell the TV. Like, I gotta, all this lie. All this lie. He's got to go all in. How, Again, how did that feel holding that rooted, lie? Rooted in, rooted in an untruth. Did like, that erode at you at all? Absolutely. It, it, and that's not, not the only thing that I've learned that eroded at me. It was my relationships with women, too. Like, I would lie to then deceit and, you know, keep myself, my head above water with the ill, ill practice of love that I did with women. And also this lie about how my career ended. Stuck to it for a few years, but there was whispers. I was also in the program. I was undrafted, kind of lanky. Like, you know, it just, uh, I was plummeting. So go through a whole year of battling the injury, not getting surgery, which was a horrible idea. I should have got the surgery. Um, and then ended up being in the, uh, getting back in the season towards the end, re-injuring the, the whole ankle again. And then that next year, 
recovery, recovery, physical therapy every fucking day. Also getting piss tests still, okay, every fucking week. And um, then it came down to the third year. I was doing okay. I was getting better, but I wasn't the same player. And they basically brought on this tight end from another team, cut me. I clear waivers. Arizona picks me up. I suit up a couple times. They cut me to make room for somebody because their running back got hurt. And they cut me to make a little room. But they say, hey, don't leave the area. Stay in Arizona because you're going to be on the team next week or whatever. So I got sent to practice squad, which is a whole other thing. Because like my talent level, I wasn't a practice squad guy. I got seven touchdowns just two years ago. I'm not a practice squad guy. But my ankle was. So, but I still had, I still had the twinkle in the eye. Like when I was on the, on the Cardinals, I was, you know, against Patrick Peterson, Honey Badger, like these guys, like I was doing good. And I was actually even getting their respect. But not with Bruce Arians' offense. Doesn't really like, uh, doesn't really like to use a tight end. Doesn't. But during that time, that first week I've ever been practice squad, Joe, fucking tear my knee. <laughs> and you know what the difference is between a, a suited up or roster spot injury settlement and a practice squad injury settlement? If I had tore my knee just a week later, I would have made $300 more thousand dollars. But I got 89. Still good. But it didn't last that long. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't last that long. Um, but yeah, I uh, tore up my knee. They cut me. I, I'm just recovering for like, you know, that typical pattern, eight to 12 weeks or whatever. Belichick calls me during that time. He's like, hey, we want you. We want, even wanted to trade for you last year, but the, the Lions are dumb. <laughs> I was like, huh, funny. <laughs> Belichick made a joke. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, when he called me, he's like, oh, it's Coach Belichick. I was like, I, I said, yeah, right. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, it's really Coach Belichick. I'm like, oh, Coach. <laughs> what's up? What's up, dude? <laughs> he's like, yeah, Lions are dumb. Try to trade for you, but you want me to come to the Patriots, be a Patriot. I was like, fuck yeah, dude. My uncle was a Patriot. I was at two Super Bowls with the Patriots. I kissed the Lombardi trophy already as a teenager. You know, I was in the locker room. I was talking shit with, I was talking shit with Tom Brady on the, on, the, on the bus after the game before we got lit with Snoop Dogg. Willie McGinnis, you know, all these big names. I, Patriots, I love it. Like, oh my God, like, oh, I'm re-energized. But we're going to practice squad. I was like, okay, cool. I'll have to last for a couple months. Season's over. Maybe we win a Super Bowl. I'll just hang out. It wasn't the same player. And they, they were working me like a horse. My knee was still not right. He told me not to come back too soon. They said eight to tw 10 to 12 weeks, right? What was wrong with your knee? Was it MCL? Oh, MCL. MCL. I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, meniscus. Meniscus. So yeah. you can come back pretty soon. Yeah. And uh, eight weeks if you're like a little DB, 12 weeks if you're Joe Holly. Yeah. But I was like, okay, bet eight. Come back in eight. Came back too soon. Mm. I wasn't the same player. So I was there for about a month and a half, just grogging along. And they were like, you know, have Patriots are a revolving door. So they're like, okay, time to go. So around Christmas time, they cut me. I go to the Rams for a tryout, Kansas City for a tryout. Um, so Kansas City for a tryout, then uh, they don't want me. Then I go to the Rams. And the Rams offer me a spot, practice squad, week 15. I'm like, okay, dope. I, I can like, I can just a little, little bit, but like, I was like, wait, but like, I kind of don't want to run on this knee right now for the next two weeks for that kind of money. Like, it's, a lot, it's still a lot of money, but like, I, there's a pride element 
I was like, okay, maybe the better thing to do is to just ride it out and take the whole off season to heal and not like trick anything up again. Like I still got the sauce. That's got, valid. Yeah, right. Yeah, rest your body, get back, wait right. for the next opportunity, be fully healed. Apparently, that was very insulting to the GM of the, the Rams, who basically was doing me a favor for a friend. But advised by my awesome agent, yeah, uh, he, it, was, it was the wrong decision. I should have just pushed through it. Because after that, I never got a call. This was 2015. I never got a call in 2016. Not one trial. Not Do you think that month. GM spread the word of like, fuck this guy for not taking that? Listen, you know how small, small this club is. Totally. It's tiny. And yeah. all, that, all those fucking old motherfuckers are doing is moving their thumbs all day. Yeah. All those coaches, all those GMs, they love texting. Mm. And they're texting who? Yeah. Each other. You know, yeah. you know talking shit. Like, whatever. Like, the word gets around. Because that, 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 it's very small. We're talking about a mountain peak that there's not a lot of room for a lot of people to stand on. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're going to talk if you're in close quarters. Totally. And that's what they do. Mm. And, uh, I mean, look, what? In the program. <laughs> Injured off the field. <laughs> Doesn't want to play on practice squad. <laughs> then, I guess the word gets around and I never get a call. Looking back at it, I would have been signed to a future contract if I would have just stuck out two more weeks because their season was over. They weren't doing good. Mm. The next year, they were... And you would have just been practicing like two days a week. Right, and right, Four right. practices, right. all you had to do. Right, future. Joe. But next year, they were in LA. And I didn't get a call. Mm. I was just in Arizona in my shit drinking a fucking bottles of wine in Xanax. When did you know that you're never going to play the game of football again? I mean, besides when the actual injury happened. I knew in that moment, 2017, I was working out. It's funny enough. I was, I was living in New York with a, with a love of mine. Long, long love affair. And uh, she was kicking butt in fitness industry. I moved out there because I was like, okay, well, let's, let's try this life. Moved in together, lived in Brooklyn. She was teaching at this gym, this boxing gym. And uh, next door to me working out was one of the Moars, one of the owners of the Giants. And, uh, you know, eventually I got to a point where this rapport, I was like, hey, like, give me a tryout. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. I'm like, dope. So 2017, I get a tryout with the Giants. Odell Beckham Jr. is catching one hand passes in the middle of practice. Everyone's in awe. And then for a bullshit of a last, kind of effort the coaches come watch us do a little tiny something after practice uh run this is during the tryout for, for the tryout this is during, like during practice we're doing a tryout yeah basically or right after practice during a trial so there's a few other players there with you that are trying out for the team but right. you're not a part of the team right you're watching kind of the end of practice as you're trying out then all the gm and kind of scouting department come to see if you're good enough to sign right even took my shirt off rock hard abs i've been in really good shape you know, in the gym boxing. <laughs> but I wasn't in football shape, really. But like, I was still there. Still there. Yeah. I was still working for You it. looked the part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but not enough for them to take me. And I'll never forget that walk off the field. You just I knew. S- I smelled the grass a little differently. And you know that. You know that grass smell. You can smell it right now. Mm-hmm. You can smell it right now. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's, it's that it's just grass doesn't get the same. You can have the same type of grass anywhere else. But the way it's kicked up with those cleats, the way the sweat pours on it and the blood's in there, <laughs> some piss, it's different, Joe. You knew you were saying goodbye in that moment? I was saying goodbye in that moment. But 
I didn't touch a ball or football for 19 months. And then this whole AAF thing shows up. The uh, Alliance, American Alliance Football League, something like that. One of these startups that's been trying yeah. over the last few years. This is 20, uh, it's 2018-ish, end of 2018. And uh, I hadn't touched a football in 18 months. And uh, around that time, I was like, just kind of running out of money, running out of hope and all that stuff. And just really battling with this, this thing, but also still reinventing myself at the same time. So I kind of already hit the rock bottom, proverbial rock bottom, I guess. At least, I, at least so I thought. But then I got a taste again. Mm. Taste of hope. I still got it. I still got it, right? When a call from none other than my, my coach from UCLA, Rick Neuheisel, calls me again in a random, not expecting your call. When I'm driving home from your schools, after you said no to my scholarship, I'm not expecting you to call. Rick Neuheisel, why are you calling me? You got a scholarship for you. 18 months of no football. I'm not expecting a call from Rick Neuheisel. But he calls me. Like, why is Rick Neuheisel calling me? Hey, you want to play some football? Is he the coach for one of these He's teams? He's the coach for the Arizona team. Arizona yeah, Hotshots yeah, yeah. or something like that. Full circle. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, there was, there was hope. And because like, could the Cardinals still have my rights or something like that uh, because there was no Boston team. And Rick Neuheisel was like, hey, you want to come play? I was like, oh, man, I'm, like, if I go, I'm like the, one of the older, older guys. So I go from like being this like, you know, Greeny, uh, green behind the ears, rookie kicking ass. Then I get out of the league. I never get to be that veteran. I haven't had that feeling since senior year of high school. Like that, that oh, like you're looking up to me because I, you, you think I'm the one. I'm doing a little more, and I'm, you know, I, I do. Mm. And I had the success on that team. I probably had the most success. You know, actually, objectively, I had the most success on that team. The biggest name in the in. NFL. Yeah. Objectively, I did. Mm -hmm. I was. Mm -hmm. I was also the oldest. But I also hadn't touched a football in 18 months. I was looking, I was feeling good, looking good. I can punch somebody, but like punch a bag, but I, I wasn't playing football. But got out there. Like riding a bike. Still got it. Yeah. But I didn't like hitting people anymore. I hit people, came over the middle, I blocked people. I was like, oh, I didn't miss this at all. Did you go into that with the hope of this might be a door back into the NFL? Fundamentally, I saw it as a $75,000 paycheck. That's it. You're That's like, it. I was going to go play because I might as well. That's it. Mm -hmm. The hope of getting back in the club was a twinkle in the eye, was like down the line, like, okay, possibly. Yeah. But it, uh, it wasn't really like the, the main driving force. It's like, I need some money. So try it out. This is, Right after I had broken up with my love of six years, moved from New York, really, really had no money, like running out. Um, and I was like, this is it. All right, I can, I can get back in it. And I am the leader right away. I am the guy. Uh, I'm the vocal guy. Like, it just, it just happened. And it was good. And I liked it. And I, and I was like, oh, I miss this stuff. People are asking me questions. People are men, which is, which is we can talk more about this later, but men in football, like, the vulnerability aspect, the tribal element, the primal element. You know, I had so many stories of men like crying to me or me crying to them. I mean, you get so comfortable when like everyone's swinging their dicks around, you know, and showering each other. What other job 
do you go in a locker room with people you work with? There's nothing out there. Nothing like, like that. that. Mm -hmm. And there's just this raw vulnerability. I remember a, a teammate of mine like had a miscarriage. And he's my locker mate. And he's in my arms. He was safe. You know, I had a my buddy of mine who was getting, his wife was cheating on him. I had a couple of friends that was, they were cheating on their wives. It was just different, you know, and, but we knew all of that. And, um, you know, it's the thing I miss the most. It is the thing I miss the most. I don't know where I was going with that. I really felt that. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah. I miss it too. It's definitely a thing that you can't really find anywhere else. And you know, I've I've found it in some plant medicine ceremonies, like like deep, deep like connection and going to into the depths of of self and doing deeper healing work in those situations and being able to connect with people in that way is the closest thing I can I can say is to it's a different energy. But it's that similar like communitas feel where it's like this is more than community. This is like we're going into with something together, a shared experience where we're going and pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone. We're going to war, Joe. Going to war. You know what Abraham Lincoln did in the Civil War? I'm sure you know this. I'm sure you've heard of it. What would they do on the, on the front lines of war? They would pair brothers together because you were more inclined to fight if you were fighting next to your brother, protecting them, you know, energizing with the comfortability aspect, like going to war where death is imminent. It's the same thing. So when you create this brotherhood with football players, it's the same thing. So, I mean, it's just it's the same concept. And I mean, it was... It, it was my family and losing that was tough, but I got a sense of it when I, I got closure from it. How'd you get closure? Playing. That from, month, from that, month, that opportunity. That, from with opportunity. The, yeah. I, I, you just knew like, okay, there's no more, like it's, it's over. Yeah. During the, during the time I thought Rick wasted my time because yeah. at the very end of it, like I got sick for the first time in a long time. I was, my body was aching. Like I was injured a little bit here and there, but I was like still doing well. And towards the end of it, it was like, I said, do you want to be here? And I was like, oh, I just wasn't sure. And then it came down to cuts. And he's like, they, like, they cut me. And I was like, oh, man, like I was obviously better than everybody else. But like, it's just like, I wasn't You got to want to be it. Yeah. yeah. And they knew that. that there was just like no potential like promise really for me. And they, I, was a, I, I was already at a point where I was starting to speak about my experiences, started a podcast, like starting to talk about and, and heal in front of crowds of people. Like this is what I went through. Already, I'd already spoken at Boise State in front of 700 student athletes. Did it. And that was part of my process. But this was my true closure. And I got it. I remember leaving the, one of the last like scrimmages. And I, um, is it, was it the Houston Dome? What's the dome? Some, San Antonio Dome? San Antonio? I don't know. One of the big domes in Texas. Oh, we're here in Texas. <laughs> dome down here that I played in. It's indoor. You know, not a lot of people there. But like, I'll never forget. Uh, they throw me this deep ball. This is like, okay, if I catch this, like, I'm probably gonna be the team. Like, I'll be the leader. This would be the guy. I'll be the guy. But I couldn't adjust my body to the ball up in the air like I used to. And I felt it. I was like, oh, I used to be full stride 
running, you know, 40 yards down the field and be able to stop on a dime, jump 36 inches in the air and catch a ball over somebody. I couldn't do it. And man, I had a fucking meltdown on the sideline. Just throwing my helmet. Like my, my, my body was aching. Like I was like, I, like, I tweaked something a little bit. I was like, fuck. I was like screaming. And you, there was no one in the stadium cheering. There was no fans. There's just like some coaches, some scouts, this and that, whatever. Like just some supporters of the AAF, whatever. It's very closed. And you could just hear my bellowing. Fuck. Fuck. Damn, fuck. Like all the sage wisdom I was giving these young men about like, you got this. You know, I was calm, cool, and collected pretty much the entire month we were there. And I was that guy for everybody. And I broke down. Because mm. I knew again in that moment it was the end. And I got that and I walked off the field knowing I was like, ah, oh, it's never, I'm not doing this anymore. So I got my closure. I got my little tiny swan song. I didn't get a swan song with the ending touchdown and then like, oh, I retire. I, I basically dropped a pass and I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. So I got it. And mm -hmm. I'm grateful for it. Not yeah. a lot of people get the, no. the press conference. No, 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 no. <laughs> like barely any. Yeah. I've only seen a few in my, my entire time. Where did the healing process begin? How did you start processing this, this deeper journey of, of self-discovery, knowing that you're no longer going to be able to play football? Who am I? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? All these things that, you know, I think every athlete confronts, every human really at some level, like, what am I here for? And it's going through that as an athlete, you get confronted with it in a really real, real way. How did you process that? And where did that take you? Well, Joe, there's no rule book on this shit, right? Mm. They don't, they don't teach you this when they're conditioning you to become this warrior, this alpha male, this violent figure. They don't tell you what it's like after. They do some seminars here and there, <clears throat> but nothing really to get to the root issue, right? Yeah, we'll help you build a, a resume so you can get another job. <laughs> yeah, fuck off. I don't want to be a marketer. Yeah. I'm like, come on. Um, so truly that, that process was difficult. I mentioned... Notre Dame, I mentioned, uh, you know, the injury off the field. And this was me truly leaving football behind, leaning into these other modalities uh, of just existence <laughs> and re-establishing my identity. What were so, some of those modalities that you found that were really supportive in your process? Creativity. Mm. Uh, it was always in, I, I always reference like priorities or or people that are like in a car. Like football was in the driver's seat, sitting pretty. Okay. The, the, maybe the broadcasting personality stuff was in the shotgun. Creativity was in the back seat, maybe even the trunk. Like I was the, the kid in the 90s that liked to sing. But back then, they call you gay. <laughs> you know, so I didn't want to do that. You know, and I, it stopped me from being in theater. I love theater. Um, I wanted to act because like my father figures and the personality that I shaped besides my grandfather was from TV. Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, Will Smith, like these type of guys, like these figures. I'm like, oh, like, I, I want to do that. You know, I was conditioned that way too. So then a creativity got in the front seat, started driving. And it was fun. Did the stand-up, took acting classes, did improv, you know, really leaned into it. And I was like, okay, I'm really working at it. And I was working at it so hard because I implemented the same work ethic that I did with football. And also the coachability from, for acting with football was incredible. I saw mm. it like in my face. The teacher would say, hey, you did it this way, but do it this way. 
and some some of these fucking actors like the they came from different schools or something like that and they're like i'd see like their attitude and their ego and like they'd be like oh but i learned it this way over here and i'm like what you say that to a football yeah, coach, you go, Exactly. <laughs> if you say like, oh, coach, I learned I learned this technique in high school. What? Get the fuck out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so like I saw that. I was like, oh, I'm coachable. Mm. A parallel. Thank you, football. Mm. It was an aha moment too. And then with that, you know, I'm hanging out with some open-minded folks. Try mushrooms. Cool. I like mushrooms. These are fun. Go to Coachella. Eat a whole chocolate bar. Whoa. Ariana Grande is tight. You know, it's so great. It's so great. And then it opened my mind and around the same time, I started meditating. I did the Headspace app, got 100 days in a row. But then I plateaued. I was like, wow, what else? Like, what else is there with this meditation? Like, I like it. I'm getting some good stuff out of it. Stillness, it's great. I'm observing. I'm not defined by my thoughts. Disassociate a little bit. I'm, re- I'm restructuring the whole neural pathways. I'm, I, I love it. I'm getting the hippie talk. You know, I know how I'm getting the language. language. I'm yeah. reading, I'm reading books. I'm doing the stuff, but all because it was like what I'm writing and journaling. I'm like all this stuff, like it's like fundamental. Like let me build a new structure. This, like I never leave a gym saying, "Oh, I regret that." I've never written something down like, "Oh, I regret writing that." I never meditated and say, "Oh, I regret meditating." It always made me feel better. So the root of that, my new root, my new my new root in truth. These things worked for me. And like I started believing in it. And it, like I wasn't making a lot of, I wasn't making any money. I got a couple Instagram deals here and there, but I was like living at my family's house, just broke up with a girl of six years. Football's gone. Sold my car. And all these like, like I'm I'm nothing. I don't have anything. Nothing. Unfortunately, that's that's how I had to learn. I face planted rock bottom. I thought there was a thought it was rock bottom, but there was no, no level. Another level. And uh, it was uh, the, these modalities, yoga, got back into it. I always did it. Like during college, I did it. And I felt I did it. Like, you know, I tried to. I knew the benefits of it. I didn't like stretching. I also liked being in a class with hot women doing cat cow and sitting in the back. So, like, keep Nama, it real. <laughs> Nama, stay here. <laughs> like, uh, so. I did that. And I had a couple times breathing with the yoga the correct way and vinyasa or shavasana and having these breakthroughs where I'm like crying. My hips are opening. I'm like, oh, I'm crying. And I'm like, you know, the teacher comes by and gives me some, some of that Reiki shit or something like that just before I knew what it was. And I was like, okay, I look back at it now. I'm like, oh, thank God I had that. I had been doing yoga since 2009. I, I had knew, known about it. Meditation arose. And then which has made trendy and popular, this cold plunge stuff. I didn't know that there was like breath work associated with it. Wim Hof fucking set me ablaze. This crazy guy in his underwear climbing a mountain in the freezing cold. How did you do that? I want to know. So I did it. I'm holding my breath for four minutes. Then with experimentation with, you know, mushrooms, LSD and a couple of things like that. Introduction. Like the first time I ever tried it is like around 28, 29. This is around the time when I'm reevaluating, reestablishing. This is like 2000, 2019, 2018. Um, and then I get really comfortable with it. And I'm like, and then one moment, because I was taboo, taboo for all the ayahuascas, the peyotes, <clears throat> the DMTs. Like that's not for me. Like I, I'll stick to mushrooms, they're cool. 
weed's cool. But all that stuff, like, I'm not ready for that full hippie. Like, I peace and love, do your thing, but I don't get it. It wasn't until a friend of mine had done DMT. His name's Bernardo. Amazing individual from Brazil. Beautiful blue eyes like yours. And uh, he, <laughs> he had done a DMT ceremony. He, like, channeled raw stuff like that. Showed me the video. I was like, whoa, this is trippy shit. Because I, I believed him. He was a good reference. And... Loved him. Had credibility, like, trusted him. So like yeah, stuff like, like that. Okay, cool. It's like, well, this is fucking out here, but why would this guy be? Yeah, I mean, some of the video, me? I was like, that's weird. Yeah. But cool because I I don't think you do that on purpose. Like I don't think you would be acting because you're not an actor. You're mm. a Brazilian dude. You barely speak English. Like, this is cool. What is going on? This was like two or a day or two after that happened. He came over to my rooftop apartment in West Hollywood. Um, which by the way, I could only afford because I got the LOD settlement. Line of duty settlement, settlement mm. which oh, is good for you. I got it yeah. too. Game changer, oh, yeah. yeah. Game changer, dude. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to fly here unless I had it. Yeah. Line of duty for people that don't know is a benefit that the NFL provides. If you hit a certain like percentage of body disablement, you get uh, seven seven and a half years of your pension. So I get like four thousand dollars a month or something like that, which is massive. You want to know a fun story about that? Mm -hmm. Please tell me. You're a great interviewer, by the way. This is the best conversation I've ever had. Uh, you got to kind of tell me where we, where we have to go back to. But LOD, I know, we know, we know guys that deserve it and that didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I know motherfucker that can't look left. Well, super subjective on the doctor that you see. Aha. It's ridiculous. Aha, my brother. Yeah. You know why? I know this. Because I was introduced to it by someone who didn't get it. Chris Durham. He's living in Paris right now with his hot Italian girlfriend working for the NFL. But he saw my struggle. He's, he, uh, he's like, hey, I have these lawyers that can help you get the LOD. I'm like, what the fuck's an LOD? He's like, what? You don't know LOD? I was like, you can get money. I'm like, for what? He's like, your injuries. I'm like, but I got injured off the field. He's like, your other injuries, dude. I'm like, what? Okay. So I go through this whole process and... Uh, they're so intricate. They're so specific. I, I've, these guys say, saved my life. They have a great business with it. And they, they, they own a couple boats because of this business they have. Because they take a little bit off the top for all the work that they did. Mm -hmm. Deserving. It runs out at some point, right? Because mm -hmm. now it's 4,000. It used to be only three. Because mm -hmm. they took the first couple thousand for a little bit, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so they do all this research and they find out Dr. He's an Asian guy. Dr. Chen, I believe his name was. Um, he was in San Francisco. They knew that he had a objectively good ratio for who he pushed through and said, hey, this guy can barely fucking move, can't move his arm or hand, give him the money, okay? Why is that important? This is important because the NFL has the, de the decision to make whether they pay, I'm sorry, the, the NFL has to either pay $10,000 for one visit Okay, one visit for the doctor. They get a 10 grand just check for every NFL player they see for the, this test. The doctors get it. The doctors get it. Wow. Okay. If they don't pass you, just $10,000. If they pass you, you get the minimum, which is like four hundred dollars or $500,000, right? Over the span of seven years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you think the NFL would rather do? Right. Not past you. Right. Yeah. And they picked certain doctors and 
give them a five-figure check to then not pass people. Mm. Dr. Chen had some fucking gumption, had some balls, had some decency, had some fucking, what's the word, character, mm. right? And he saw everything that I had and I got like 12, 14 points, which is like just above it. And I got it. Yeah. It's interesting. I had, the doctor I saw was when I moved to Texas and he's down in San Antonio, which there's no NFL teams there. So he's like a little bit more disconnected directly uh -huh. from there you go. the NFL. That was a and saving grace for you. Totally. And he was a super dope dude. And he, he worked with NBA players and the Spurs and stuff like that. And he was just a super great dude. But Is he, he still work, doing it? Still doing it. Do you know what? I don't Three know days after I got approved, the lawyers call me, the Florida guys, because the guys have run a great business. Uh, they call me like, Joe, guess what? And I'm thinking like, oh, like, joke's on me. You actually didn't get it. I'm like, fuck. Why are you calling me? Yeah? They're like, Joe, guess what? I'm like, what? Dr. Chen's not working with the NFL anymore. The shit you saw in that movie with Will Smith with concussion, it was the tip of the iceberg. Mm. There is this network of power and money, okay, that the NFL has is very scary. I mean, I don't want to get too horror movie style, but it's absolutely that. Because they passed, I don't know if it was me, but because his number went up again, he no longer gets those $10,000 checks. Yeah. Because they were paying $10,000 and $400,000. And that's why so many athletes really struggle because there's this, it's, it's almost not even just the NFL, but this systemic kind of culture of football that you're programmed at such a young age that it's all about the game. And when you're in the NFL, it's like protect the brand, protect the NFL, protect the logo of the team. And it's just programmed into like, don't talk about personal shit. Don't be vulnerable. Don't have any eyes on you. And for me, when I was done playing, I was like, who am I? Yeah. And even this podcast, like I've had to work through so many of my own insecurities and fears of, of judgment and what, if I say the wrong thing, it's like, nobody gives a fuck now, but I still have this program of like, somebody's going to come take my shit away or fire me because of something I say and who I am. It's just really, really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm so, so aware of like that beautiful part of football get removed from me. Because of the NFL. Not because I got cut. Not because anyone else got cut around me. But it was just because it just wasn't, it became business. That was I a big part of my grieving process was realizing that there was a point through my, my time in the NFL where literally the, the love, the pure essence of love I had for this game that I just, I told myself when I was high school, I was like, why, why, what's the big fuss? I'll play this game for free. I love it so much. Yeah. It came to a point where I literally walked away from the game in my prime because I no longer could find the love because there was just so much bullshit that went in, into it. I saw that. I saw you say that. Mm. Yeah, and that, that's why I'm glad we're talking about it because I know what you're talking about. And you know, some people are like, oh, why are you complaining? Like, just shut up and play. Like that, that, that's like, that's, I don't want to hit people. I like, guess it's, it's not like, intrinsically kind of fun then it's just then it's then it's literally just violence you take away the fun it's just violence mm. and you know what I had never realized that until I said it just now with you and your wise sage beard inspiring me <laughs> like seriously like what the fuck if you take the fun away from football which the business does 
It was the fun. If you have the ability to rise above it, like Gronkowski and Kelsey and those kind of guys, those dynamic very people. select few though, very because there it's like even like Aaron Rodgers. Like I'm so grateful that Aaron Rodgers was the one who's such a high profile player, winning the MVP Dude. to talk out about psychedelics and ayahuasca. He basically was taking on the NFL and what they say. I was really interested to see like how that dynamic would work. Like, oh, we don't actually test for it, so then we're just gonna let him go and like act like it never really happened. If that was one of us that came out right. talking about ayahuasca, we would have been cut. Quick, look at he split. Yeah, out of here. But he trend guys like him transcend the game. Mm. Tom Brady transcended the game. Gronkowski, like these names, Tony Gonzalez transcended the game. Like they they didn't need it. They had the fun. So they were just like they were doing because they're so good at it. But even them, like Tom Brady going through his retirement right now, like he tried to retire last year and he couldn't do it. So even they have to confront the fact that this huge part of who they are yeah. is no longer who they are. And a right. lot of people get attached and go, you know, into bro he's going into broadcasting. He's going to be involved in the game, but there's a deeper healing process that needs to occur or else it just starts eroding at you. And I think a big part of that is the ability to connect with the emotional release and the grieving process of losing literally a psychological identity and ego built up around this one specific thing. The only way to heal that and let go and really come to the deeper truths of who you are is to really feel the loss of it. And that happens through the grieving process. And that's one thing that there's not a ton of resources, if any, that the NFL actually provides in that realm. And also and easier said than done, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk so, about yours. What was no, your what was yours? And I mean, I intuitively, I'm really grateful that I intuited that I needed to go on a journey because as I started deconstructing So you story, weren't a hippie like Eb before? Like, Eb had a hippie mom. No, no, no. So my my parents are super religious, super yeah, dogmatic. So, so same as me. Yeah. Like this is totally new for you as well. Totally. When, yeah. I, when I said I was walking away from the NFL, my, my fiance was like, what are, what are you talking about? No, you're not. I'm like, what do you mean, no, I'm not? Like, I'm ready to walk away. And she's like, no, we like, she was attached to being a football player's wife. So I ended up breaking off that engagement. Holy shit. Told my parents Oof. that I was walking away. My dad was like, why are you walking away? Like, you're going to say no to millions of dollars. What are you going to do? How are you going to make that amount of money? And so like, as I started deconstructing the story and realizing like what what else is out there, like I wanted I, I wanted to taste the freedom from this this kind of self created prison of like this pursuit and everybody seeing me as a football player. I wanted to be known for something more because I knew I was something more. I just didn't know what that was, and so I intuited like didn't really know where to go, didn't feel grounded, didn't feel like I had a home. So I bought a van and I traveled the country, and in that process was able to deconstruct all the stories of who I was and and really grateful because that process, you know, led me to plant medicine, led me to, to deepening my yoga practice and really taking care of my body. And really like when all the CT, CT stuff started coming out, like middle of my career is what created this really deep fear of, you know, what happens when I get older and I have dementia. Like that's a very real fear that started kind of just eating away at me. Especially at center. Exactly. So that's what got me into understanding like how do I be proactive about my brain health? And that's what got me deeper into meditation and then understanding like psychedelics, seeing the fMRI scans and the, the, the neurochemistry and the neural connections and the neurogenesis. And, you know, we were told growing up that the brain, like you lose brain cells, there's no way of getting them back. And now they're starting to realize there's, there's this thing called neurogenesis where you can actually recreate new neural connections through novel experiences, through learning, through things like plant medicine, yoga, meditation, deep states of presence and that's just been a continued unfolding and I just continue to access deeper and deeper layers and and really understanding about the psyche and and feeling like going and finding places where I feel super safe to to feel my emotions and tapping in with my emotions has been the most profound 
healing process and tool. Like I understand when I get emotional, like I can, I can go into those emotions. I don't suppress those emotions and try to fight it. And that's all the difference. If what at all do you find similarly with football and the stuff that we're doing? Is there? I would say it's the, it's the, the communitas. What I mean by that is what I spoke to earlier is me and you on the same team, we're going through a training camp. It's one of the most challenging experiences I've ever been through. It's an NFL training camp. It's not just the physical strain on the body, but the mental anxiety, having to perform, always looking out like over your shoulder, like I could get cut at any moment. This guy, I'm competing against all these guys, but I have to like create brotherhood with them. Yeah. And there's something about having a common goal and going and like blood, sweat and tears with somebody like me and you, we've never played together, but we have this connection that like, I know what you're about because you made it to that level. Oh yeah. That, that's universal too. That, that's, that's also MLB, mm-hmm. NBA, like MLS. Like totally. If you, you have this certain like, oh, no one else knows what we're talking about mm-hmm. feeling and you get me and like, I can skip through a, a bunch of small talk and other bullshit of your story because I know you, what, I have a sense of what you did to get to this point that no one else does. So I found the depth of that in this deeper healing journey of going to, you know, my first ayahuasca ceremony, not really knowing like what the fuck is this? It's like a seance. It's kind of freaky, especially coming from like a religious background, like, but going in and, and really confronting these, these deeper aspects of myself, these deeper traumas and experiences and like really feeling and psychosomatically releasing like this energy that feels at times like grief that's not even mine, like ancestral energy just moving through my body. And it takes a lot of courage to step into those states and those places. And in those experiences and in those ceremonies, being able to witness that warrior, that spiritual warrior the, the, in, in the eyes of people showing up to do this deeper healing work, not just for themselves, but for their families and for the collective, that is something that inspires me in a really deep way. And it, it really reminds me of the, of the connection of this common goal. I'm showing up to do this healing work for something greater than myself so that I can really shift and, and make the world a better place. So you felt called to it while you were doing it that you needed to share it? Or at what point you're doing these, these, this journey, ayahuasca and doing these modalities, but at what point you're like, oh, like, I want to serve too. Yeah, I think it's a natural uh, process when you go on this deeper healing journey and start understanding the, the essence of, of who you are. You start seeing yourself in others but and realizing we're all one. It always isn't like, I don't think it's always someone jumping oh I, I love this this helped me i want to i want to serve i want to service it as well i want to be of service as well i mean I, do you th- do you see a high conversion rate i think people just do it and then bounce yeah i mean there's a lot of people that use it for their own personal healing right. and stuff i think it's part of my deeper makeup my deeper soul's purpose of what i'm here to do yeah. and continuing to to step into the greater calling that i'm being asked to and confronting a lot of fears and limiting beliefs that are holding me back from stepping into that i'm actually accessing this this deeper core wound around my family dynamic growing up in a religious household. I've always had this, and I'm just now uncovering this like a few weeks ago, having a conversation with my dad is I've always had this deeper fear of rejection from, from, from my family and from the church and from just doing it wrong. And so what I realized is because I had this fear of rejection, I was rejecting parts of myself from really shining bright and being in my fullest expression. And it's something that's really held me back. And objectively, I've had a super successful life. Like I played eight years in the NFL, started in 54 games. But I always knew that I didn't reach my highest potential because there was a part of me that was holding back, especially in the leadership realm. Yeah. So my journey has always been about really 
stepping up as a leader. And in order to do that, I've had to access this deep root fear of rejection because if I show my full essence of who I am and I get rejected, there's nothing that really can hurt me more than that. And yeah. and because of that, I'm rejecting myself. And so I'm working through that process right now. And what is required is a deep, deep feeling. Like in order to move through those stories, you have to let them die. And that requires a grieving process. And so when we talk about this death rebirth that happens, we all go through it. It's, it's the death of the stories. And when you can let enough stories die, you can access a deeper level of freedom where you realize like, I'm so much more than I think I am. And the stories of who I think I am are the things that are actually getting in the way of the essence of, of who I am. That beautifully segues into like, the general part of my journey was all these things that you just mentioned, but sharing it and experiencing it and, and respecting it and gracefully using it, accepting all of it because I loved it so much and because it was like something that wasn't necessarily glorified. Uh, I got to a point where I was like, okay, if I'm going to maybe do this, like be of service or even serve, learning with shamans right now like so for the for the large part of this like when it really ignited from when it ignited to now it was i respect this so i'm going to do the work behind the scenes and i'm only ready to actually share it when i feel comfortable with my education of it um, it still has so much more to go but now if you ask me questions or if like you laugh in my face when i when i get when i talk spiritual stuff like i'm like i'm grounded mm. i know this shit works I know the supernatural is real. Mm. I no longer need proof. I'm not surprised. Anymore. When was that knowing anchored into your heart? Because it, it, it goes from belief, right? When someone tells you like, oh, what you believe, or this is what I believe, what we've accessed is I don't really care what you believe or, or what I believe. It's, it's a knowing in my heart. Nobody can take that away from me because I know for certain that I have a connection to something greater than myself. It's not a belief at that point. When did that happen for you? When I was really lost, Football was definitely over. I had really little money. Then I got some weird, like, random extra check from the NFL in the middle of summer in 2019. And I had some friends in Europe, and I was like, I want to go. I've been wanting to travel, never could. This is my time. I got, like, a few grand in my account right now. Let's let it rip. And in that moment, I got to be my best self. I wasn't weighed down by Joe, the former NFL player, Joe, uh, you know, any of that stuff, like Joe, the LA guy, because I did the Hollywood scene for a little bit. Uh, I wasn't that anymore. I could reinvent myself and be like my raw self. And I struggled with that for a little bit because I lived in New York and I wasn't confident. And everyone asked me, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I don't do anything right now. I just used to play in the NFL. But uh, now I don't know. I don't make any money. <laughs> you know, and that was the weirdest thing. But then got to a point where I was traveling a lot. Uh, at least that this was the beginning, the inception. And then there were so many reflections of beauty. A couple times though, I learned a hard lesson when I wasn't articulating myself the right way to order food to someone that didn't speak any English. And I was just like a little hungry and a little rude. And I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that guy. But in that moment I was. And my friend Sam got so mad at me. He's well-traveled. Went to UCLA, well-traveled, a little younger than me, but well-traveled. And 
he got his Ray-Bans off his face and threw them at me. He started turning bright red again. I, I was like, what? He's like, you can't talk to people like that. I said, what do you mean? I'm, I, was like, I thought I was being funny. Thought I was being gregarious again. Like, oh, here goes Joe. And that was a moment I was like, oh, again, I can't do that. Like, oh, I'm that guy. I'm that American guy saying like, chicken <laughs> to an Albanian woman who can't speak to me. I said, chicken like an asshole. And he threw his glass at me. He, he's five foot two. He almost punched me in the face. And I'm laughing, but then I, as I serious, as I see him shaking, I'm like, and then I go ghost white. I'm like, oh, I'm that guy. Mm. I'm that guy. From that moment on, I've never done anything like that. And I've been my best self. And I've practiced it. And I've molded it. Fine clay, like just shaped it, sculpted it. And now like, I travel like, I don't think people, like, when I'm in Greece, like, oh, they're like, Adonis and Apollo, this guy, look at this guy, and he's so great, he's so nice. Like, not, not, not the reference to the Greek gods, but to truly, like, oh, like, I, I mold this personality and this character over the last couple of years through travel and abundance of these modalities. I was doing breathwork everywhere I went, got comfortable a little bit to the point of sharing it. And, you know, I was like, hey, let's listen to this YouTube video together and get high off DMT. Which, by the way, which is the beginning of that, that story with uh, the end of the story that Bernardo from earlier, when he channeled Raw and stuff like that, we did a breathwork session all together in 2020. Uh, so obviously, I traveled a little bit 2019, then the world shuts down. 2020, I'm still wanting to be an actor, but there's no, there's no auditions during COVID, right? So what are you going to do? I leaned into Wim Hof. Let's have breathwork parties to help combat the virus. My buddy Bernardo did DMT the night before. Next day, we did a breathwork session. Watched, listened to the YouTube video. Like four or five of us. Rufio's there. Dog. And then my other buddy who I invited to do a breathwork session was like, uh, I'm good. I just want to be here. I was like, he didn't know what the word was. But he was like, I'm holding space. Right? One of my dear friends. So we do all this breathwork session. We do like three or four rounds of like some psychedelic breathing. And Joe... I don't know what those three letters DMT standard for. Now I do. In this moment, I was You access this just from breath. Just from breath. Wow. Seeing colors, white lights, feeling I'm going, shooting down a fucking Tron-like spiritual tunnel where there's fractals. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? But I accepted it because I was a little bit practiced. I'm like, let's go. Bring it. And I'm like, moving, jittering, ah, like all this stuff, vibrating. Like, what the fuck? Like, I've had some good feelings and some tetany and like whatever. And holding my breath for four minutes. This is so cool. When that moment, something was ignited. Um, I'll, I, I got to tell Bernardo in Miami during Art Basel, like, thank you for that. Thank you. And like, he's kind of off that train now. He's like really business oriented. He likes having his really high rise, nice apartment and bringing nice girls over. You got to send me this YouTube video. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's super easy Wim Hof. Super easy Wim Hof. Super easy Wim Hof. We just did it. Yeah. We just did it, but it was just ignited. And I was like, yeah. and I had been doing a practice for like, you know, two, three, four months in a row where I'm holding my breath. Consistency. Yeah. And that was unlocked. And then this experience with his leftover DMT in him or whatever, whatever the source is, was just emanating from him. I got a piece of it. Mm. Was that like, changes everything. I want more. Yeah. What is this? Mm. I'm into it. And that's not taboo for me anymore. I described it. 
And Bernard was like, oh, it's DMT. I'm like, what? What the fuck? Because DMT is naturally... Yeah, so we, I, I activated my own DMT. Get, yes, if you want to get supernatural from his leftover, not in smoke any of his leftovers. Yeah. I, I was just breathing in the breath around me. It was in the frequency of the, the field. Absolutely. The field well. Absolutely, my man. It was exactly that. And that moment on, it was around the beginning of COVID, go online, try to get my certification for breath work. And then like I had this opportunity. I'm still traveling. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not, wait. Finish out COVID, get my certification, then I start traveling again. And as I'm traveling, I'm in the Caribbean, St. Bart's, it's locked down. So my two week trip turns into three months. I found a way to bring the dog over. It was incredible. After that, I go to Dallas, lay over here, sleep with a beautiful woman, and then go to Mexico. I get an audition while I'm in Mexico. I can still do it remotely, right? So I can just do a Zoom call and film it or whatever. I get an audition. I gotta go get a haircut. Okay, I go to this Mexican barber shop, all right? And Juan is cutting my hair. I'm like a little off the sides, you know, even more on the top. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I see, I see, Claro. Claro, okay, I see. And I was like, yeah, 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 cool, cool. I get a phone call. And this is April 2021. Yeah, April 2021. I, uh, damn, man. This is one of my favorite conversations of all time. Thank you so much for this space, dude. Mm-hmm. You hold space like uh-huh. a fucking mountain that you and Eb definitely need to get together. Uh, but uh, so he, uh, he got Juan's cutting my hair like for an audition. I get a phone call and it's from my like distant cousin that I only met eight months before. Why is that important, Big Joe? Well, Medium Joe, it's important because. I met my father for the first time in my life or first time in my adult life, just eight months before this audition, this Mexican trip, right? I was going to a spiritual retreat. Thought it was just spiritual yoga, breath work, just the easy stuff. I didn't know there was actually plant medicine there. More on that later. But eight months before I had met my cousin, distant cousin I'd never met before. After I showed up and purposefully felt called to go see and meet my father who I hadn't seen in 25 years. So I'm when I was five. And my mom got a big blow up while, cause he took me to McDonald's without her. Cause I was a child out of wedlock and he wasn't a part of my life at all. She kept me, thank God. And uh, the thing about it is, oh, fast forward, he had left after I, was born five years old it tries to get in my life doesn't really work out huge blow up with my mom i have my grandfather i have my uncles i have coaches i have a good i take so it took a village for me and i had that thank god my mom's a nurse providing for me with the help of my grandparents fast forward set was it 17 years so five to 22 no contact zero he calls me before the ucla usc game it's like, I'm going to the game. I said, like, who is this? <laughs> it's like, I got a phone call. I was like, who is this? It's like, Joseph, it's, uh, it's Andy. I'm like, who's Andy? Like, it's like, your father. I'm like, I was like, I haven't talked to you in 17 years. Why are you calling me right now? He's like, I'm going to your game. I'm like, is this, this is not the end of Waterboy where he's like, we're going to be like Tiger Woods and his daddy. Like, no, that's not it, dude. Like, you, you can't come to my biggest game of my senior year before I'm going to the NFL and say, I'm going to come to your game. Mm. 
fuck off, Andy. I said, no, I don't want to see you. I'll see you on my own terms. End up scoring two touchdowns that game. We beat SC in prime fashion. Rain's coming down. The rain only came down when we were on offense, when Barkley was out there. For some reason, it was always sunny. <laughs> Fucking Matt. Love that guy. But we beat him in prime fashion. One of the most elated feelings I've ever had in my entire life up until that point. And he's, I know he's in the stands, but it didn't bother me. Fast forward eight years, no contact again. I'm ignited by my travel. I hear, oh, if you prove your great-grandparents are from Italy, you can get citizenship. I said, what? Mom, I want to get citizenship from, uh, from my father's side, from Andy's side. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if I prove my great-grandparents, I could, I could become Italian and get a European passport. I don't know if there's like ever like a, a pandemic, I can go to Europe and like chill there. Something like that. I don't know. We got properties everywhere in the world, <laughs> you know? We just got Hawaii. <laughs> but, oh man, this is, this, is funny, this is funny to tell because I saw him when I was five, talked to him on the phone when I was 22. When I was 30 years old, I felt compelled because I wanted to get my citizenship. My mom says, Joseph, he never signed your birth certificate. My mom never collected child support. My mom was feminine, but also a mountain of a woman for me. She had to raise a giant. So she had to embrace her masculine, which also then, now I understand it ruined her relationships because she had to be masculine for me. Mm. She took on both roles for me. She was throwing the football to me. So I'm like, fuck, oh, I, don't have, I don't have a birth certificate. How am I supposed to get this Italian citizenship? I got to go meet this guy after not seeing him, from, seeing him in 25 years. Okay? Go to Detroit, meet up with a buddy. I'm like, hey, can you come with me, please? I need help. I need someone on this eight-hour drive to Olney, Illinois. Where's that? I don't know. I still don't know. But I was there. <laughs> it's the type of place where you're in the middle of the street and but fucking nowhere, and the wheelchair people, the motorized ones, are in the street using left-hand turn signals. <laughs> turn signals. It's that type of place, right? So I meet with this uh, notary to get this thing official. I meet my cousin for the first time. We all get brunch. I buy the notary brunch, buy the, my cousin brunch. I'm like, hey, let's do this. I say, hey, notary, stay here. What's my notary's name? Julie Ann. More on that later. We go to my father's house, my biological father's house. And he invites the, you know, the, 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 the door is rickety. There's an alarm going off. Like, you can tell he's coming. I see a, the silhouette of him coming down towards me. He's wearing a, he's wearing a hat. And uh, he sees, he's like, kind of like, what's all that racket? Like, straight up, like, Midwest style, like, Oh, like that kind of shit. And he's old, not doing so good, messed up teeth and shit. And he's like, oh, come on in to Jamie, my cousin. And uh, he looks at me like this big guy. Like, I have my sunglasses on. I took, he took, does a double take. Probably not all there, really. I don't know either. He took my sunglasses. He's like, hey, it's Joseph. And man, the motherfucker was breaking down. My mom was six foot. Motherfucker was like 5'8". 
five nine. We end up talking about it later. He's like, "Oh, I don't even care how tall your mom was." And I, don't know. I was like, oh, "Okay, chill, bro, chill, chill. I don't need all the details, bro." But in that moment when I first saw him on the steps, where he is like on two steps and he's still like my height, me on the bottom of the steps, like, "Hey, it's Joseph," and he starts, he just, he just can't can't function and he can't say any words. He's breaking down. His head's in my chest. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm comforting my father for the first time in my life. I'm crying now, but I didn't cry the whole day. I was like, this motherfucker doesn't deserve one tear. But I got my closure. I got my AAF football moment with my father. Say, hey, sign this stuff. That's the only reason why I'm here. But while I'm here, tell me some stuff. The hat that he was wearing was a UCLA football hat that he bought at the SC game. He was a fan of mine. He's proud of me. He had one more hat in the entire house. Amongst all this muck and clutter around the house, you know. You can tell he made some bad decisions in his life. And he told me about them. He had one more hat in the house. It was a Lions football hat. Got my closure. I got my signature. I'm going to get my passport. The notary that witnessed all of this and gave her a little bit of the story, I still keep in contact with her, Julianne. She didn't charge me for the six hours that I had her. Paid for her breakfast though. But Midwest breakfast at diner, I paid eight bucks. <laughs> she didn't even drink any orange juice. She said water, <laughs> you know? So, um, in that, Grateful to have had that because there were something, there were synchronicities, so many, and I was aware of them because of my practice. I was strong enough to go over there because of my practice. In the hotel the night before, thank God I shaved my mustache because I would have looked like, just like this midget. <laughs> you know? Thank God I had to shave my mustache because I would look just like him. But I meditated and did breath work the day before, the morning of, and it prepared me. <sighs> he, signed my, he signed my birth certificate. It's all settled. It's all great. Actually, some, at some point, something goes wrong, and I signed it in, in a, the wrong ink or something like that. It didn't get notarized the right way with a stamp, not by Julie, but by the other person or something like that. They sent it back. I sent it to Julie, Julianne. You know, who also was trying to get her citizenship for Germany, but like couldn't do it because her her grandmother's house burned down. So she's like has this like special like purpose to help me. <laughs> she like chased him down in like the middle of the street. He wasn't at the house because he's he had gotten locked up. He had abused drugs. I got to ask him the cliche question like, "Hey, where were you?" He's like, "I had another family." I was like, "Okay, moving on." We talked about deja vu at one point. He asked about a special gift that I had. I was like. That was kind of synchronicity too. I was like, oh, okay, a little twinkle in my eye. Maybe there's something beyond what this man looks like. Nevertheless, he signed the paper the correct way on the hood of a car. It's the last thing I really know about him, really. That's what Julianne described to me. Um, 
get it all situated. I'm getting my passport now. It's on the way. Um, but uh, that day in the barber chair, um, my cousin called me. This is eight months after I had seen him for the first time. I'm in Mexico going to a spiritual retreat the next day. I'm in Puerto Vallarta. I go to Sayulita the next day. Getting a haircut in Puerto Vallarta, leaving for Sayulita the next day. Calls me. And before I answer the phone, Joe, I know. I'm like, what? why is he calling me? Like, he called me like once, but like, why is he calling me right now? And this, this like, my heart was just like beating. I wasn't, I wasn't nervous for the audition. She was, she was cake. Crushed it. Didn't get a call back, but crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he, uh, he tells me, I already know the answer. I already know. He's like, hey, Joe, I uh, just want to let you know. Like, he was very delicate, very graceful. I'm kind of skimming through, but he was like, uh, I don't know how else to tell you this, but um, Andy's gone. Andy's dead. And I already knew. I was like, all right, man, thanks for telling me. Again, didn't shed a tear. <laughs> and went on with my life. I looked at the sunset a little differently. I could actually see it in my mind right now. Mm. April 7th. Stands out. I was auditioned that day, the haircut that day, and the day I found out my father died. April 7th. April 8th, spiritual retreat starts. Thank God I asked, manifested, I asked Daddy Universe, give me some more hippie friends. And it worked out that, hey, hey, come to this thing in Mexico. It's really cheap. They're going to build it up later. It's going to be way more expensive, but you can get it for 700 bucks for a whole week. Dope. I said a bungalow. I can hear the birds. and It's beautiful. Well, these hippies were also doing 5-MAO DMT that night. I don't know what that is, Joe. I, I, I don't know what that is. You, you, you do what to a toad? You jerk it off? <laughs> like, what do you do to it? You pop its pimple on the side so then it sprays so then you can smoke it or whatever? Now I get it. But at that time, I had no idea what it was until that day. I said, hey, we're doing a ceremony today. My friend, my dear friend, the, the hippie girl that invited me, Logan, she knew about my struggle and what happened the day before. I told her I trusted her. I didn't know anybody else. There was a few people on the retreat. They had their own thing. I was like, I don't want to impose it on anybody. She, I, she, she did tell the retreat leader. And he's like, hey, like, heard about what happened. We have this thing that might be good. This is what it is. I said, what is it? It does what? You, what? All right, bet. Let's do it. Taking mushrooms. I've activated my, evaded my own DMT. Done the research. But I wasn't going to go to Costa Rica, go to ayahuasca and be around screaming people for five days. I just didn't want that environment. You know, I wanted something peaceful, easy. I've been through enough violence. And that's what I got. April 8th, the day after my father died, I tried the toad. And, uh, it's one of those things, Joe, where you know this is, is if, if everybody did it, if everybody did it, if everyone was part of the Sonoran tribe in Mexico and got initiated, none of this bad shit would be here. Uh -huh. None of it. And I, I experienced the death. You know, Mike Tyson describes it perfectly. You take a rocket ship past everything. Joe Rogan describes it perfectly. Like this shit like is not for, like it's not, it is for everybody, but it's not for the faint. It's for everybody. 
but it's almost incomprehensible. It takes so, courage. It does. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't fucking know about it though. <laughs> <laughs> right? Would I do it if I knew what it would? Right. And the, the descriptions of it are, you go to somewhere else, you mm. experience death. It's scary at first, but once you accept it, it's beautiful. Mm. My first connection to source truly with a little of awareness of it, a little bit, this, this journey, this, this enlightenment thing, right? It's, it's palpable. It sticks to you. It creates new speed bumps and neural pathways in your brain to then fire different ways. It creates mm. new activity. I'm thinking differently. The old Joe's gone. I went home after that with a new sense of purpose. Okay, I want to I wanna serve. I want to do this. This helps me. This helped me. It can help others. I don't want to serve the medicine, but I want, I want this, these things that I'm so passionate about that I know that work for me to give to others. I tell a couple people the story. I don't want to scare anybody away. I'm not sharing it. Um, I'm not in anybody's face about it because I've been put off by other people in the space. Egoic leaders and facilitators where it's like, this is my way or the highway. And it's also super duper woo-woo. I can do woo-woo, but give me some relatability, please. You're not Sanguru. You're not Deepak. Like you're a dude facilitating something that's been around for thousands of years. Get your shit out of it. I saw that. I was like, okay, I can do it better. The competitive nature, which is a little ego. A little ego is okay. But I've been overcome in the space by retreats and people that are holding space for me where I'm like, oh, that's not right. I'm not doing it right. Like, uh, let me usher in a new way. I don't want to scare people away from their first time. Welcome the first timers. Get a conversion rate. Right? That month after my, uh, my first Bufo toad ceremony, was magical. My integration was beautiful. It was purposeful. I was aware and mindful and in awe of everything. Things were going good. I was, things were moving. I was able to travel more and I had plans to do this, do that, or the other. I made a couple of dollars here and there. And then uh, I'll never forget, I'm with my hippie homies from the retreat in Malibu, smoking a joint on, the, on, the, on their porch over the water, waves crashing. And I'll never forget, like we're talking, we're getting really in depth. And then I say something along the lines of like, you know what? If death shows up at my doorstep tomorrow, I'll be okay. I'll be good. I think I'm fucking wise as fuck. <laughs> you know? Death shows up at my doorstep tomorrow. I'll be fine. That was May 18th, only about five weeks after my father. The next morning, May 19th at 8 a.m., about, um, I woke up to the most potent, visceral, painful scream I've ever heard in my life from my grandmother. But even though I knew it was my grandmother screaming, I, for some reason, the first thing that came to mind was like, Mom. I rushed to my grandmother as she can barely stand. I catch her. Thank God. She's not young anymore. And 
she can't get out the words. And I, and in that moment, I know, I already know what it is. Just like the phone call because of the work I've done. I had a little bit of intuition. I had a little bit of, you want to call it guessing game or like, Oh yeah, you sure you did. You sure you knew? No, I knew that kind of scream. You don't hear for no reason, not from a fucking stubbed toe or a wrecked car or flat tire. She was screaming because her daughter died. My mother. Three days after she got the vaccination. I'm not one of those. Do with your body as you will. I didn't get it. But my mom had to because she was a nurse. My mom's name was Julianne. Same as that notary. She's always with me. But when she left that this earth, physical realm, uh, I hate to say it, but I was prepared. I was prepared for it. If I didn't have these weird hippie modalities, breathwork, meditation, the yoga, especially the breathwork, I would be six feet under myself. But the beautiful part about this is, is that I'm reaffirmed by this letter I did not open during my mom's like rehab stint when I was traveling the world. She wrote this letter about joking about how she didn't bring the right clothes to the rehab center. And she's like, I don't know how to pack like you, you world traveler. So funny. Then she goes in this fucking depth of a sound healing treatment. She describes in vivid detail what the gong sounded like. And then she's like, now, Joseph, I see it. I see what you're doing. Because, you know, a son worrying about their mother. It falls on deaf ears. Your parents tell you to do something. You're like, okay, mom, dad, like, shut up. Okay. Like, that was their relationship. I was like, mom, you, like, uh, let me show you some stuff. Like, it's a sound bath. Like, try this with me. And she was getting better. She wanted to live. She was an addict, but she was, you know, I guess that's my optimism is that she wanted to live. And uh, she was taken away from me from feeling bad and having a negative reaction from the jab. And uh, she, seeing black dots and stuff and wasn't feeling good, had first day had 99 degree fever, second day 101 degree fever. I remember she was serving me pizza the night before, cauliflower pizza that she made herself with a robe on because she was having chills. And then she went back home. And in the middle of the night, I guess she walked up where she was a tall woman. I guess she passed out and hit her head. Never woke up. Um, but I am her. She is me. She lives through me. I get to tell stories like this about her. Like she, she is an addict. She had these problems. She is not here anymore, but I am the product of the good in her. She was dealt a bad hand, trauma, 
rape, that kind of thing from an uncle. Like, I never understood that. I can walk down a dark alley. And I always thought my mom could. The woman I grew up with was, could walk down a dark alley and hold her own. But at one point, she was fucking 14, 15 years old. And she didn't have a fucking giant to take care of and be masculine. She was delicate. And someone took that from her. And I had to witness the trauma surrounding it. And it was up, and it was up to me to break it. And I broke it. And had I not broke it before she died, I don't know if I'd still be here. So, if anything, I'm just a walking billboard for this fucking stuff to work. Mm -hmm. This shit works, and that's why I want to share it. I'm proud of you, brother. I really appreciate you opening up and taking us on that wild-ass journey of your life. <laughs> Holy fuck. Man, there's actually even more, but I'm going to write a book. So yeah, yeah, we'll wait for the book, man. And dude, I'm I'm just really, really grateful for you. And it's been beautiful to connect. And and just the way you just open up your storytelling is incredible. Your journey is incredible. And I'm just super proud of you for for going down this path and and using your voice and your platform to to really share about this good work and, and bringing more people on board because that's what the world needs. So thank you, man. Anything I can do to support you, I'm here. You felt that too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I did this soul gazing shit recently and that reminded me of that. <laughs> so that was, that was only two seconds. Imagine if we were staring at each other. Oh, we should do it later. Okay. <laughs> oh man, thank you for creating this space, man. There needs to be more mountain men like you in this space because a lot of delicate flowers, mm. a lot of divine feminine, which is beautiful. I need it. I need more of it actually. But in this space, we stand out like sore thumbs. Not because of our beards or your beard because of my height because it's palpable mm. it's honest and true because you wouldn't be faking it because you you don't need to fake it because mm. you already went through it you had the experience that got you to this point in an honest and true way it's rooted in truth that's, that's been the theme really with my story a lot mm. of things were rooted in lies now i'm rooted in truth and i'm it's unwavering dude that's why good, I came here it? and opened up with you. I love it, dude. I really appreciate you. I know everybody listening. Oof, I can't imagine that journey. I'm just, I need to process myself. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to connect with you or follow you or, or see what you're working on? Sweet. Well, I'm leading Breathwork. Obviously, this won't be out till then, but this week in Austin, just a free thing. It's just sharing it with people. You guys are obviously welcome. It'd be awesome to share it with you guys. I think you guys might like it. Uh, but at Big Joe. That's really it. At Big Joe and then my, my health and wellness company, we host retreats around the world. It's on there. You can find it. Um, but really, dude, I'm just, just super humbled to share this space with you. Something different about getting respect from offensive linemen that I told you about earlier that I've been getting a heaping dose recently mm -hmm. from the walking side by side with Eb on the retreat and looking at you eye, the, eye to eye on your podcast. Mm. It's very humbling. Yeah, man. Deep respect here. All that stuff will be in the show notes. Deep gratitude for you, brother. And thank you to everyone that's listening. Appreciate you. Peace. Uh -huh.